Okay, we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to miss this conversation. Who the hell would? All right. This is going to be a really, really good show. I appreciate everybody tuning in. Make sure before you do anything, before you do anything, before we get started, go subscribe to Jonathan Sheffield's YouTube channel right here. This guy is one of the coolest Christians on planet Earth. Okay. Seriously, he made my intro that you're going to see in just a second. Go subscribe. Show him some love. Show him that we humanists know how to show love, okay? Show them that. Also, richardcarrier.info. This website here, his blog, everything you can go help him out on his Patreon. You can take college courses online. You can give him, uh, if you want to just, you can hire him for a task. I mean, like there are ways in which you can utilize his skills and trust me, he's got them skills. Yeah, I got skills. What are you going to do about it? You ever seen that clip on YouTube? That's what it reminds me of. Richard Carrier is a boss when it comes to this stuff. Also, the Patreon, this is how I feed my family and keep the lights on, and you can access tons, tons of videos you can't find anywhere else. And they're Dr. Richard Carrier, Dr. Dennis R. McDonald, Dr. 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 All over the place on MythVision Patreon. Please go help support us. Let's grow this thing. Let's keep MythVision alive so I can keep looking at my wife and saying, but I'm working. And she can go, ugh. And then I'm working. You see what I'm saying? You're helping me. You're helping me give an excuse and win an argument because we men never win these arguments. So, ladies and gentlemen, I have Dr. Richard Carrier. Welcome to Myth Vision. Glad to be here again, as always. And my good friend, Jonathan Sheffield. What's up, my brother? <laughs> Thanks for having me again, uh, Derek. And it's a pleasure once again to have a dialogue with Dr. Carrier. Yeah. I'm yeah, excited. Definitely. You guys, seriously, this is not like a formal you know, get your gloves on and, and, you know, uh, it'll be an interesting discussion. I don't want to be in the way of you guys. When you have this conversation, I'll start us off with a little bit of questioning. And then I know it's like the snowball effect. The questions will come naturally. I will take, uh, if you guys are cool with it, I'll take super chats during, and maybe throughout I'll find like a window, but if for whatever reason, I don't get to their super chat here, I'll like make sure at the end that I address them all. I'll screenshot them so I don't miss any super chats and I'll save them for the end. So awesome. let's start off. I'll, sh I'll go ahead and put it on to, to Jonathan here. Jonathan, tell us what are you trying to propose when it comes to the book of Daniel? What's your whole point in writing this article? Okay. Uh, first, I, I think the goal of the article was really to build on my previous arguments from the debate uh, I had with Dr. Jim Majors and Dr. Uh, Josh Bowen, uh, with a special emphasis on Josephus' report on the presentation of Daniel to uh, the Macedonian King Alexander in 332 BC. Now, uh, to give you a little bit of the backstory, I was, I was very interested in Dr. Carrier uh, participating in this project because once again I think as a historian and as a philosopher he brings a lot of great insights into history so uh, my engagement with Dr. Carrier after um, we had a discussion on explain apologetics with Dr. Stephen Boyce and Samuel Nissan was hey let me go ahead and pursue my thesis you know that Josephus report presents the simplest explanation as to why Alexander did not capture Jerusalem. You know, and to that end, just because there wasn't a whole lot of time I had with Dr. Richard Carrier, um, because he was doing a review, um, I was like, well, 
let me outline, you know, some of the circumstantial evidence uh, to kind of go ahead and set this. Uh, let's go ahead and grab all these facts or substantial facts for my view that leads me at least to believe that we can infer and kind of corroborate the fact in question. So, you know, for me personally, I thought it was strange that Alexander didn't initiate a conquest of Jerusalem or, you know, install a Greek occupation. And I think what makes this conversation a little more interesting is, once again, we have another report from Josephus uh, with respect hey, to Jonathan. Jerusalem. Sorry, I was yeah. muted for a second. Do me a favor. Pull your mic away from your mouth just so we don't hear that. There's a little bit of like a – yeah, and, and we want to hear what you want to say. I just don't want everybody who's listening to keep hearing it, and uh, sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, no problem at all. Uh, my wife tells me that all the time, so <laughs> I hear it all the time. So is, is that better? Oh, yeah, huge, yeah. Okay, perfect. So, you know, then we have this other report that goes to Jerusalem Survival, and – you know, from my perspective, it appears once again, we have, if it's true, we have another, you know, good explanation uh, that Cyrus's decree, you know, returning the Jews from exile, allowing them to rebuild their temple amidst all this uh, kind of pressure from the neighboring nations to fortify Jerusalem. So I have two things that I really want to investigate. And Carrier, Dr. Carrier is a great historian. He provides great insight. So let me engage him in a project knowing that, hey, some things may be wrong. Uh, some things I may be very gullible on. Uh, you know, I am a Christian. I am an Anglican. Uh, you know, there are certain theological uh, positions I hold to. But let's go at these questions. And I think one of the interesting thing I did pull into the argument was the background argument. Um, this thing that I observe with the history of the Jews, specifically related to the Bible of Jerusalem, there are other, you know, big thinkers that I've been influenced by, such as Nikolai Berdiev, Mark Twain, that seems to provide some insights into some of the things that I see. Now, once again, we can all be wrong. It's coming from my perspective, but uh, I, I have uh, looked at some of this stuff and I was just see, well, this is strange. Now, I do want to let everyone know this doesn't naturally default to a God hypothesis. Doesn't mean anything supernatural is possible. But what I'm saying here is, can we give the Jewish voices or the relevant witness to Jews here an opportunity to speak and investigate the veracity of the claims? If they're true, does that mean that there's an observable black swan that we need to engage? Or is it a mirage maybe that we see? Maybe that's a good word to use uh, maybe a mirage that our senses are seeing. And with that, um, I will uh, turn it over to Dr. Carrier to give some of his uh, thoughts and insights. Yeah, it's always valuable to see this. Uh, that's one of the things I like about uh, our collaborations uh, is that you actually present like good, concise analysis of what you believe and why, right? So that it, it, and it's like sincere and it can actually go in and like, analyze the the logic of what you're what you're arguing uh and so that that actually makes it much more 
effective rather than gamesmanship or, or rhetoric and things like that, that I often have to deal with, with Christian apologists. So I, I actually, uh, I, I like working with, uh, with you on this stuff. Um, of course I disagree with all of it. Uh, right. So, uh, I think it's the other way around. Obviously. I think there are, there are much simpler explanations for the courses of events uh, that are already presented in the records. Uh, and, uh, we already know that like it is the typical feature of religious literature to be propagandistic and make stuff up. Uh, especially things that are convenient to the people who are composing these documents. So when Josephus, and Josephus alone, he's the only source who says, does this, uh, and this is hundreds of years later, right, after the facts. Uh, he, when he alone has two stories that are identical like this, where Jewish scriptures are shown to these great leaders, Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great, the two greats that interacted with the Jews uh, of that time. When, when he alone shows two of these stories where they show him a book, you know, a prophecy prophesying how great they are. And then they go, oh, that's amazing. And then they shower all these benefits on the Jews, right? So that's, that is definitely in Josephus's self-interest to invent these stories uh, or, or any other author that he might be using as a source, although he doesn't mention a source uh, for any of this. Uh, and none of the other Jewish sources mention these, these versions of events either. Uh, I, I don't find that realistic. Like, I don't think that's how Cyrus or Alexander would react to some Schmoes showing up with a book. Hey, look, we have a book that proves that you're going to be the conqueror. It's like, oh my God, that's amazing. No, they'd be like, yeah, sure you did. Right. Whatever. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't find it realistic, but also in the sources that we have, especially the more reliable sources that are closer to, or citing sources that are closer to the events, um, already give us explanations. I mean, the, the, in both cases, uh, the Jews surrendered, right? So, uh, or in, in Cyrus's case, he has, a, he had a nationwide, he had an empire-wide policy that, that benefited all of us, all the ethnic groups. There was nothing special about the Jewish, the way the Jews were treated. Everybody got the same treatment. And he describes and explains why he did that. That was actually a, a policy of magnanimity for the purposes of getting people to be more compliant with his reign and to be more profitable so they could produce more taxes. So it was actually a completely sensible reason. And he says this right himself. So we actually have it from, from the horse's mouth as it were. So we don't need this. In fact, it doesn't do any work. The Isaiah story, the Isaiah story doesn't do any work causally. Uh, like if he's doing it for everybody, clearly it wasn't just the Jews who showed up with a book and convinced him to be nice to them. Like, no, this was a general empire wide policy from which the Jews benefited. Uh, that was, that's the actual, that's the simplest explanation. And same with Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great did his conquests, he had the carrot and stick strategy that all great conquerors used, which is that, look, you can surrender, pay tribute, and then I'll leave you alone. Or uh, you can resist and I'll crush you. And so that's, that's what he did. I mean, uh, so when he gets to, we have actual accounts uh, that the, uh, that Jerusalem, the Jerusalem elite surrendered. They actually paid tribute, gave him soldiers and the whole deal. So it was like that there's no reason for him to have besieged the Jews. And so there's no further explanation needed. Uh, and, and then that's the basic structure of my response. And then there's, of course, all the little minutiae of other specific details about uh, your case that I went into in, in my response article, uh, including the background uh, point about how the Jews are special, um, which isn't true. I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly, I mean, every ethnicity's history is unique. Uh, so uniqueness is not a special property in and of itself. But the specific events that have happened throughout Jewish history have ordinary causal explanations. There's nothing supernatural or amazing about it. And also that has nothing to do with whether their authors are any more reliable than other human beings. I mean, the basic principle of non-racism is everybody's the same. 
Uh, so they're, they're so you know humans are shady in general, uh, <laughs> prone to propaganda and whatnot, and and prone to gullibility too, right? So like it, it's possible Josephus heard these stories and just believed them. Uh, I, I from other evidence in Josephus's scholarship, as I cite in my previous article, uh, other scholars have noted that Josephus is actually a bit shady in his uh, misrepresentation of history. So it's it, he's also probably using some poor sources as well. But he himself does not seem to be a particularly reliable actor uh, in all of this. And there's there's particular political reasons for that, too, that Josephus has a shady history as well. So um, so I think the simplest explanation is Josephus just made these stories up. Uh, and when we look at the historical analysis, <clears throat> the way we would do it with multiple source analysis, chronolog chronological analysis, uh, background fact analysis and so on, um, we don't need these myths to explain uh, the course of events. Now, uh, I think one of the things I want to bring up, and, and once again, I, I appreciate your engagement on this point. I, I think in your article, what I did appreciate, because sometimes I don't see this level of engagement from others, was right. the uh, was the thought process of, you know, well, your theory possibly goes to that there's this other Daniel or the first six chapters of Daniel and uh Jonathan, it looks like you established a really good case of motive. Right, right. I doesn't... didn't mention that just now, but that's a good point. Keep going. Yeah. This is, this is a whole one of those side issues that came up. But yeah, and, go, go ahead. And so first, I think it's a great point because uh, I establishes motive. And once again, we are all people. And uh, sometimes in desperate situations uh, results in a desperate oh, measure. So I, I, I guess I should explain for people who haven't read the articles, right, who don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Which should they should, yeah. If yeah. You could, uh, go the articles over are great. And one of the things, I mean, this is another digression, but uh, I, one of the things I love about this is that it gets me to go into the reasons for our methodology and pointing out where I think where I think your methodology goes wrong and why. In, in an abstract way, which I think is makes it a good teaching tool. If we just dismiss it, we don't get to dive into these and it, like explain like, well, why do we do it? That? Why do historians do things this way rather than another? Um, but to get to the point here is there are some scholars. So the mainstream scholarly view is that Daniel was forged in the second century BC as war propaganda for the Maccabean War. Uh, but there are some scholars, uh, and they're taken seriously, uh, who argue that the first half of Daniel, books one to six, uh, might have been forged earlier. So it might have been forged in the fourth century. And there's some evidence they bring for that. And that uh, books seven to 12 were added on in the uh, second century. And then, of course, more books were added later, 13 and 14 and so on. But uh, <clears throat> so th that's one view. And consequently, there is a, an established mainstream hypothesis out there that the chapters one to six could have existed when Alexander showed up and the, that book could have, that version of it could have been shown to him. It would lack chapters seven to 12, however, which is um, the chapters that Christians most need uh, for their foundational uh, teachings. Um, and so, so like your, your defense of it would at best, I pointed out, suggest that they forged one to six, Daniel one to six, specifically to try and persuade Daniel to leave them alone, right? So like using your own theory, like your own internal logic, uh, it, it doesn't actually get us around uh, the problem of how do we establish Daniel predates the fourth century, which it purports to do. It purports to have been written in the, uh, you know, early fifth century, right? Sixth century. I forget. Yes. Seventh century, <laughs> 600, <laughs> around 600 BC uh, is when it purports to have been written shortly after 600, basically. Um, sixth century BC. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, so that, that, that there wasn't even evidence for that particular thing. And I don't, 
endorse that. I don't think it's, I don't think they forged uh, Daniel one to six to try and persuade Daniel, because I don't think anybody would try that. That would be a, a, a sure fail methodology. Daniel or Alexander would not be impressed with this, but, uh, but anyway, in terms of your internal logic, that was one of the points I made. And so you were, you were about to talk about that. So that oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. No. And, and I thought it was a good point. And uh, once again, it's, it's where Dr. Carrier likes to engage the argument. Um, and so let me walk you through some of my thought process. And once again, this, mm -hmm. this is how I was looking at the situation. First, uh, I think one of the points you, where we both agree, I, I think if the Jews would have done something like that, uh, it spells ultimate destruction. Uh, just because he would have had counsel with him, he had historians, he would have been able to consult them. Like, are they trying to put something over on my eyes? And to right. think about it, that he has Athenians there, which really didn't like him that much, and others. It's like, who this guy is being hoodwinked by the Jews. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I would think he wouldn't even need advisors, right? So, like. We take we know we both know that the Egyptian oracle of Amun did the same thing, right? So, uh, so um, I'm sure Alexander and Alexander promoted that. He says, "Oh, look, the oracle of Amun says, you know, this is great." <clears throat> I think if the Jews had presented him an oracle like that, he would have used that too. He said, "Oh yeah, look, another oracle has confirmed that I'm going to be the ruler of the world." Uh, but that would be his propaganda. Like he, it wouldn't move his decisions politically. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to do the same policy as ever, but he would use that as, as sort of extra boost to promote it essentially. So I think, I think both could happen in conjunction, right? They could present, say, Hey, our Oracle predicted you'll be the ruler of the world and we're surrendering and we're going to give you all this tribute and help you out. Uh, both could have happened, uh, at the same time. That's entirely plausible history. And Alexander would be responding to both in conjunction, right? It, it, so it wouldn't be a situation where, no, we're not surrendering to you. Here's a book that says you're going to conquer the world, leave us alone. Uh, that would not have worked and is not what happened, right? So that that's that's my take on it. That's where I'm coming from on that. Now, here's the difficulty with me coming to that ledge. And, and one of the things <laughs> that I look at on the Orthodox Jewish canon um, is you know, we do understand the, the Septuagint coming into the Greek-speaking world. Uh, we understand that there was a, a number of Hellenistic writings, um, especially with Daniel. You know, when we look at like Bell and the Dragon, uh, Susanna and Daniel, and even though I think they they bring great intellectual insight into the mind of the Hellenistic uh, Greeks, what I, what I find odd is okay. If it came in in the second century or afterwards, or they were adding on, one of the problems I have is, you know, when we look at the Orthodox Jewish canon, these Hellenistic writings, yeah, they come into the Septuagint, they're floating around other words, they, they come into Christianity. Uh, there's other parts of Daniel that comes in, and we don't see that in the Orthodox uh, Jewish canon. And, and then we have these groups. So, and, and just to talk about uh, two of the big ones, you know, so uh, the disagreement between Hillel and Shammai. So you have two big Jewish groups in the first century. They really don't like each other. They have different uh, views on the, uh, on the oral lore, but they both, you know, occupy the same Orthodox Jewish canon. So one of the things that I'm trying to get around is if if I look apart from what Jos Josephus maybe claims about, okay, well, the 
the Jewish Orthodox Jewish canon uh, from the time of uh, Axiosurses, you know, has been pure. It's been preserved. We didn't add anything or take anything away. Um, why do we see all these Hellenistic writings coming into like the Septuagint and these others, but not the Jewish canon? If there's this tendency where they're building upon Daniel uh, with these other sections of the book. Yeah, I mean, this this is again an example of this is all later mythology, right? So at the time, uh, certainly before Hillel and Shammai, there was no Jewish canon. The only thing that would be canonical would have been the Pentateuch. Uh, that that was that was fixed in stone but the the prophets and the historians <clears throat> the other sections of the tanakh were very fluid uh, and and there was no decision made on which ones would be officially accepted <clears throat> uh, frankly until after the jewish war it was hundreds of years later uh so this this idea of the scriptures being pure of course that's what they're always going to propagandistically claim uh you know the christians claim that too of their own uh, bible even though there were tons of other New Testaments floating around that even predated theirs in some cases. So, um, so yeah, they always claim that, uh, but that's not that's we know that's not the actual history. We look at Qumran, for example, and we see tons of other books being treated as if they were canonical, uh, as if they were the Word of God. And <clears throat> so, in, in that particular time, we're talking the second century BC during this time of war, uh, and we also have this precedent that we see a lot of times is lost books suddenly getting discovered at convenient times. This is a <laughs> common thing. We see this in, in Roman religious history as well. Uh, and there's, this happens a lot in, in religious history. Deuteronomy has a story. They look in the King's literature. They just suddenly discovered the lost book of Deuteronomy that was sitting in the temple and no one noticed it until conveniently <clears throat> when it supported their particular legal reforms. Uh, so, so, that, so that trend happens, right? And we don't actually have the literature we don't have um, like relevant political literature. We only have the propaganda from the Maccabean period. We don't have like people arguing about what's going on at the time. We, we don't have opposition documents on this. So we don't know what opposition was saying or what, we don't know any of that. So we don't know, we don't even know what uh, they were doing to promote Daniel uh, during this time. So there's no, we don't have the proclamations. Oh, look, we found this book or, or even conversely, well, as it has always been said, you've known, you've seen this book since for centuries, and it says this, you know, we don't see that either, right? We don't, we don't have any, we just don't have access to what was going on uh, in terms of the way they sold this book. And so all we can go on is precedent, what usually happens. Uh, and so when we look at the, the, the evidence that it was forged in the Maccabean period is overwhelming, like it's exceedingly strong, uh, which is why all mainstream scholars agree with this now. Uh, so, so then it's just a question of, well, there are many different ways that that could have happened, uh, and we don't have any evidence by which to re rule any of those ways out. So uh, where we end up in critical method is it's a second century forgery, uh, possibly the first section, fourth century, that that's still debated or uncertain in the field. Okay. Uh, another thing that uh, you brought up, and I, and I want to explain a little bit more of my background in the sense of why I, I chose when I was looking at the analysis to say, well, why am I going to use the Jewish scroll of fasting, uh, the, the Babylonian Talmud? Uh, why am I going to bring in origin now? And so my, my thought process was this, Dr. Carrier, is first, we, we, we have a... Uh, we have a report from Josephus uh, that describes this, but we also have all these other documents um, that seem to point to maybe one section of the report. And the way I was looking at it is almost 
like a circumstantial case, you know. Uh, yeah. Once again, to get people up to speed, uh, what Jonathan's referring to is that the le there were le many legends about how Alexander interacted with the Jews during his conquests. Uh, and we find he mentions the School of Fasting mentions this. Um, the, the Talmud has stories and so on. Uh, and those versions don't mention the Book of Daniel being involved. Uh, so what, what you're talking about is why you still think they're relevant as maybe like triangulation of some kind. Uh, and, and of course, my response, you know what my response is to that, but I'll, I'll let you continue. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and and this is just to give you kind of my thought process, because I was thinking, OK, well, if I look at the Jewish scroll of fasting, you know, the, the context of it from, you know, what I understand is it, it's just a chronicle which enumerates like 35 eventful days in the Jewish nation where something, you know, wonderful happened um, from those groups. Now. I know from the document itself and the Talmud, there's at least a person of interest identified in terms of authorship and possible dating uh, around the Tanatic period. But the one thing I was establishing, I was like, okay, well, if any of the story is going to be true, can we establish any link between Alexander and the Jews? And all this report does is say that there was some sort of meeting and then when I look at the Babylonian Talmud, it was interesting when I looked at Yoma 69 and I was thinking, okay, well, uh, right here, you know, we're having a rabbinic discussion uh, because the, the question is being raised, okay, about priestly vestments, when they can be worn, can they be worn outside the temple? And then uh, the response comes back, well, we have this situation uh, which refers back to the, the Jewish scroll of fasting where, you know, the high priest came out. So then I begin to connect. OK, well, then they have this pr procession that comes out to meet Alexander. You know, Alexander pays homage uh, to the Jewish God. Um, and then, you know, you kind of have this uh, element in there of, a Jew, you know, with the Samaritans that, oh, these are the people that rebelled against you. So then it's it starts putting together this uh, kind of, you know, okay, well, I have a street camera on this uh, corner and then this one. So the guy who killed him maybe passed by this angle. So what I was trying to build is, you know, we have we we have a response from origin that kind of ties back to Josephus's report from his discussion with Celsus on, okay, there was this ask from Alexander. Uh, there was this denial from the Jews, um, you know, which seems consistent with what we see with Tyre, where they didn't want to offend uh, Darius. So we had this element, and and the other part that I had brought in was, you know, we have Joe, uh, we have Judea, and uh, even though I I do think uh, Echetaeus of uh, Adepta may have been stretching his figures what i almost like how xenophon says you know there was a million persians it's like well no it wasn't a million it's probably much less but we had the elements where there was possibly resources he had this big long siege you know he's asking a per persian ally for support at a time when the war is impending uh and then the jews tell him no and then all of a sudden at gaza you know, they get real scared. There's some sort of movement. They come out to meet him in, in an attempt for the high priest to preserve the Jewish people, which leads to this event. So I'll, um, and once again, you reviewed my article. 
um, and uh, you went over this, but if you can explain some of the audience, uh, yeah. some of your thoughts on that and your response as well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, again, that's an example of an <clears throat> opportunity to teach like how historians do things like this. We know, like we can prove, this isn't speculation, we know that Origen used Josephus a lot. Uh, Origen was a big fan of Josephus, <clears throat> employed the manuscripts of Josephus in his arguments. So the fact that Origen would refer to this story in Josephus is what we call non-independent attestation. So it's, it's not an independent corroboration. It's just someone repeating something that we already know. Uh, so it, it can't, Origen cannot support Josephus. Now it would have been different if Origen had said, well, Josephus says this, and here's this other source that says this. Like if Origen had multiple sources and they were, <clears throat> you, you, then it would be a different analysis. But Origen, no, he, we know he only, he's using Josephus. He doesn't mention any other source for this. So it, it just is a copy of a, of a story already told. It doesn't corroborate. So we can't use Origen. Uh, we need to throw them out. It's not usable for confirming the story itself. Um, and the other versions, the Scroll of Fasting version, and more interestingly, the Talmudic version, uh, and that's a, that's a version that gets uh, written or edited over centuries. Multiple rabbis are involved in, in uh, adding to the Talmud and uh, composing it uh, over time. Uh, and for people who don't know, the Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah, which in legend were the all the laws and rulings of Moses that were handed down orally. Uh, and even the Mishnah theoretically apparently wasn't written down until after the Jewish war. So this is it itself is already a late text. And then the Talmud is a commentary on that. So that's even later. Um, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of the authorities that are quoted uh, might actually come from literature predating that. So when they say Rabbi so-and-so said this, uh, it is possible that they had writings from that rabbi or about that rabbi that they were pulling sections from. Because we have a lot of other things like this, like Greek commentaries on Greek sources will do this. They'll pick they'll cut passages out of other lost books, which is how we know a lot of literature that's been lost, how we know what was in it and stuff like that. So it is possible they had earlier sources. Um, but whether they did or not, uh, there's no book of Daniel. Uh, so in the Talmudic version, um, there's actually three versions of what happened. Uh, the two most salient are the real politic explanation, which is that they surrendered and Alexander you know, did the usual thing. He says, okay, we, let's make a deal. Uh, you're saving me trouble and giving me money and resources. That's cool. Uh, that's, that's how I roll. Uh, and so that's, that's what happened. The other version is that he had a dream uh, in which God it's in various ways revealed to him and convinced him to, to accept the surrender of the Jews and so on. Um, that's already not a plausible story. But the fact that that's the story that they tell means that they were not yet aware of Daniel. They, they, their myth uh, that they were familiar with was that D uh, Alexander had a dream. Uh, and so there, there's no book of Daniel convincing him in that. They hadn't heard of it. And there's a particular reason why that might be. Uh, actual Jewish authors were not so hot about Josephus because he they considered him a traitor. So there, and, and also he's writing, you know, in, in Greek. Uh, so th they were less interested in uh, pulling anything from Josephus. That's why you find very little reference to Josephus in the Talmudic literature that he was not, uh, he was not one of them in their, in their eyes generally. Uh, so that's, so it's possible they never even read Josephus, but if they did, they clearly didn't uh, credit his story because they didn't include it uh, in their version of events. And so th this is what we talk about in his history is like, this is corroborating evidence that Josephus made it up. Right. So this is, this is when we look at the multiple sources, we see, oh, this new thing that arises only arises in Josephus. When we trace the common roots of the story, that detail is not there in, in what we call the archetype of the story. 
Uh, it only appears in later versions of the story, well, one, which is Josephus. So as we do analysis, that's how we triangulate in history. We end up with the opposite conclusion uh, that, that you do. Um, I also want to get your thoughts, um, at least in establishing some of the, I guess, French benefits uh, <laughs> that the Jews uh, possibly received. Um, you know, and, I, and when I looked at, um, obviously, Josephus, who's quoting uh, Echetaeus of Adepta, um, you know, he refers to him on many different accounts, but in reference to the the benefits procured by the Jews, uh, first, uh, he mentioned, you know, the Jews served as allies with Alexander in the campaigns, uh, which ties back to an element of Josephus' report on Alexander asking, you know, do any of the Jews want to come in and, uh, you know, serve in my army? And then they have the benefits that get laid out where, you know, he brings them over to Alexandria. Uh, he establishes equal privileges with the Macedonians. And Josephus does appeal to a series of documents, uh, the epistles of King Alexander and Ptolemy. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on some of that documentation coming from uh, Josephus' citation of Ecateus. So what are your thoughts on some of the documents he refers to? Um, no, he, he never credits this Daniel legend to Hecateus. Like, so, so Josephus correct. never says that Hecateus wrote that they presented this book to Alexander. Um, so, so as a historian, I, that's not usable information. I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe there was a genuine work of Hecateus on the Jews written in the fourth century that Josephus used as a source. Um, I mean, Josephus says he did in other places, uh, but he doesn't credit Hecateus with this particular thing. So we can't use it, uh, unfortunately. Uh, it's, it's, it, it would have been more helpful if, if Josephus had been more meticulous about citing his sources when he had them. But there's a reason he doesn't is because Josephus wants to be able to get away with making stuff up. So he can't be meticulously citing sources all the time. He wants his, his style to be, I'm going to present stories. Some of them you're going to find in other literature. Wink, wink. And then I'm going to give you more stories. Uh, and so you can't tell the difference between the ones I'm making up and stuff. So if, if he had gone through and meticulously cited a source for every story, then the ones that he made up would be would stick out like a sore thumb because they would be unsighted, right? <laughs> uh, so so I think that's one of the reasons Josephus is not being so meticulous about his methodology. He, he wants cover uh, for the stories he makes up, which were more than these stories. There's just a lot of stuff is fishy in Josephus. Uh, and, and for particular propagandistic reasons, there's a, a large scholarship on analyzing the rhetoric of Josephus and his propagandistic means and, and methods and, and goals and stuff like that. So, um, but uh, so, yeah, so Hecatius is not terribly usable. It's also a problem that we're not really sure there was a Hecatius uh, on the Jews. Um, it's possible that's fake as well. Uh, the, now, I'm not convinced of that, but I'm also not convinced of the reverse. I think the evidence is undecided, right? So I, I would never rely on a premise that it was fake, um, but I would uh, not be entirely reliant on a premise that it was authentic either, right? So it's, it leaves us in a sort of uncertain uh, no man's land, which as an ancient historian, I was trained to be very comfortable with because we're stuck in this I don't know scenario a lot uh, about ancient history. So you, you got to get used to it uh, if, if we're doing this, uh, doing this work. Um, so that, that is familiar to me that being in that place, but, uh, but yeah, it's a frustrating situation, but since we can't tie the story to Hecatius, um, then we, it, it's not, that's that particular detail is not 
usable, unfortunately. What are your thoughts? Um, you know, because one of the uh, one of the mainstream arguments, or, or some of the arguments that are out there, and it's not just yours. I uh, I, I do uh, see Christians using this argument uh, when I brought it up. Is you know the the later pagan histories of uh, Alexander do not reference this event. Now you know which I I do get. Now I'm not saying okay, well. Uh, we're just going to draw a conclusion from that silence. But uh, one of the things, and while I am going back to Josephus, he does make a, what appears to be an empirical observation uh, that he speaks to specifically in his writings in against Apian about many of the Greek writings uh, writers not mentioning the Jews for, you know, and, and, and we do understand the anti-Semitism, I mean, throughout history, but he seems to appeal to that. And he does give an example between two historians uh, of the period, one wrote on them being uh, Hecataeus and the other one uh, not uh, mentioning the Jews to show this trend. Yeah, um, the uh, yeah, I, right. I, I don't comment much on that in my article um, uh, because I, I don't think it, I think it's too much of a digression. Uh, and I, I actually have one paragraph on the general concept of what you're talking about, which is a methodological point, which is uh, what that is, is an attempt to explain the absence of evidence. Um, so logically, I don't even have to address whether that explanation works or not, because even if it was correct, all that leaves us with is still no evidence, right? So it's like, it doesn't matter how many excuses one makes up for why the evidence doesn't exist. The evidence still doesn't exist. So so it's, it's actually not a helpful device, really. Uh, it, there are times when that kind of argument can be useful for building another argument, uh, but it doesn't work in this case. It, it doesn't help. So even if the premise is true, it doesn't get us anywhere uh, in this particular case. Um, but uh, I also I also find the premise dubious. Uh, it, there is truth in that, that, that there were, uh, I mean, there's a lot of dismissiveness. I mean, I wouldn't put it like jealousy. I think that's a propagandistic thing for Josephus to say. No, I think it's just disinterest. It's like, who are these hicks? Who cares, right? Like, there's, we're going to talk about Egypt. Who cares about this little hick little uh, province next to Egypt? No one cares about. They're constantly getting stomped. Like, who cares about these guys? Uh, so, so I think that's what happens. I mean, if you look at Arian, for example, uh, I don't know that he mentions it much. But he would have done had the generals of Alexander mentioned it. Uh, and because that's he's getting his information from the eyewitnesses, the people who were there, uh, basically. And <clears throat> so I think even they thought that this was such a minor incident. And there were you have to admit, there were tons of these minor incidents like there, there's, you know, hundreds of cities and, and little kingdoms and stuff that that Alexander conquered that we don't find mentioned in the sources, even though we know he ran over them. Uh, so uh, or, or struck a deal with them or whatever. So so they, what they do, the historians pick on the things that they think are important to mention that are important to them or they think will be important to their audience. Uh, so Egypt is a big deal. So obviously going to talk all about Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's why the Amun Oracle gets mentioned in there. Uh, it, I mean, I would think the odds are would favor uh, them mentioning the Oracle coming out of Judea as well, because they already have the big Oracle, uh, uh, the, the fancy one from Egypt is already backing them. So they could have thrown in, Oh yeah, and then they look at all these other oracles, and here's another one over here. And you know, this minor temple god also gave an oracle, etc. Um, 
I don't think it's like impossible. I don't think they would ignore that. Uh, I'm sure Alexander would use that as propaganda for that particular region in, indeed. Uh, and so I think it would end up in the history books, even if it was dismissive, like, oh, a Penny Annie Oracle. But nonetheless, you know, we got the one from Amon and here we got this other one. Um, there's an example that we have, which is the Zalmoxis cult, right? So there's in Herodotus, this is a classic example of what we're talking about is Herodotus mentions that there's this cult in, among the Thracians, which uh, is Celts in above uh, above Greece, uh, and this is back in fifth century BC. And Herodotus is saying, you know, there are these Thracians who believed in Zalmoxis, who died and came back and uh, promised them uh, eternal life if they had like communal meals. And he gives this whole story, and then he goes, and but the Greeks say, and then he gives this whole polemical teardown of the Zalmoxis cult with making fun of them as, oh yeah, he just faked his death. Uh, he, he, you know, he borrowed all his ideas from Pythagoras. It was all a scam, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> we get that. So that, that, this is a group that, that are really scoffing and, and, and belittling the Thracians. Uh, and what they do is not ignore them. What they do is they make up a, a, a you know, a polemical version of events. And then Josephus or uh, Herodotus gives us both, right? Uh, so you could see, you probably would have encountered the same thing uh, with the Jews, where they would tell the Oracle story, but in a mocking way, like, oh yeah, these penny Annie people with their little uh, thing. So they, 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 it, it doesn't automatically follow that they would just ignore them. But it is also entirely plausible that they would ignore them, thinking that, that it just wasn't important enough uh, to, to write down. So, uh, But that doesn't tell us anything about what actually happened, right? Because they're not writing it down doesn't, uh, basically cuts us off from access to what actually happened because the eyewitnesses who could have told us haven't told us. So what, whether it was jealousy or indifference or whatever, it doesn't matter. Right. That's, that's the, that, that's my general response. So I didn't have to go into particulars on mm -hmm. that in my article. No, that's a good point. Um, I, I, I think the, a couple other things that uh, I kind of noticed about uh, Jerusalem, you know, and taking into the analysis is, you know, one of, uh, you know, Alexander's uh, key generals or one of his generals, uh, Ptolemy, uh, did take uh, Jerusalem afterwards, uh, three years after his death, which, you know, in my mind, okay, well, why the difference in philosophy? Uh, obviously, you know, just like we see today, you know, and, and not saying that uh, presidents or always listen to their generals because we don't. And I think we see this in the, uh, in the media today and everywhere else. Um, but that was one of my nagging inconsistencies is why do we see that difference? Um, obviously we see hundreds of years later, the Secludians, the, uh, descendants of Alexander going to make a conquest of Jerusalem and, and then we see this difference with Alexander philosophically. And once again, we do see that politically happen even nowadays. I was just watching down the news, you know, with Afghanistan. But I want to get your thoughts on that just from the military uh, perspective. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, if you look at the history, especially around uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right, the period where the Jews were constantly switching sides between the Egyptians and the Babylonians. Uh, and so you have this constant back and forth where they they betray the people they pledge allegiance to and join the other guys. And then when things go bad, they betray those guys and then rejoin the other guys, right? So uh, there's a lot of this back and forth real politic going on in Jerusalem. They're trying to figure out who to side with. Uh, and I mean, obviously once Alexander died, there was a lot, there were a lot of regions that tried to rebel uh, at that moment. And so the 
the uh, Diotokoi, who are the, the successors of Alexander, had to go out and like reconquer st some of these regions, uh, basically put their foot down to sort of stop these rebellions. Uh, and so, I, I mean, obviously that suggests that's what the Jews did too, is they say, well, okay, this is our chance to throw the yoke off. And then, you know, then the Seleucids come in and say, no, 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 we're, we're, we're consolidating this. Uh, and then of course, you know, they were terrible rulers. Like the Seleucids were the, the worst like, of, of all of them. Uh, and it's like a classic example of like their empire just shrinks gradually over time because they were just so bad at governing, uh, <laughs> by all accounts, right? That's, um, so, uh, as opposed to the Ptolemies who remained pretty powerful. Even, they did try expansions that didn't work, but their control of Egypt remained solid all the way up until, uh, you know, the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Uh, and that, that was literally the last province in, uh, in, in the Mediterranean that the Romans had to take down to really consolidate their empire. Uh, eventually, of course, they logged in Judea, but even when, uh, like in 6 AD, but Judea, even in the 30s BC, Judea was already a paying tribute tributarian to the Roman Empire. They were a client kingdom. So they were already basically submitted to the empire at that point. Uh, and the Ptolemies were the last ones. Uh, but uh, but yes, that, that's, that's what I think was going on there. The, the, the Jews just switched sides or decided to try and throw the yoke off and the Seleucids stomped on them. Um, they didn't try that when Alexander was alive because they made a treaty with him and things were going well at that point. Uh, at least as well as could be expected. So, uh, so I think that's that's the sequence of events. There, we don't need any like any other further explanation. It's it's a typical sequence of events that we saw happen throughout Alexander's empire. Okay. Now, one of the other points I was bringing up, and um, it, it does segue into a point about uh, how we look at numbers from the ancient world. So, uh, I'll definitely allow you to uh, to speak on it. Is you know, uh, part of my case was to build that you know. Judeo was bountiful. Uh, he had this long seven-month uh, siege going on. He needed resources. He was employing. And Judea marked uh, a spot where he can get resources to support that would tie back to the argument that, you know, just like Tyre kind of assumed that the war's not over. You still got to beat Darius in the east, and you may have 100,000 people. I don't think your 40,000 can beat him. Uh, we're just not going to play those odds yet. Uh, we're cool over here. Hopefully the Carthaginians come to our aid. Uh, so we're good. Now, uh, I, I use Ecateus' uh, report. Now, once again, I do agree that the, uh, obviously they're not the statistical geniuses that we are today. And, uh, and I'm not saying that the, they are Trump numbers. That Look how big it is. Uh, maybe that is so. But here's the thing. So if I'm looking at those records and I'm saying, okay, well, maybe he didn't mean 120. Maybe he just says a lot of people from what he sees. And then he sees all these villages uh, throughout Judea. Now, yeah, the, the number does seem high. And you brought up a really good point about, uh, you know, irrigation and water and, you know, the animals need to drink too. Now, one of the things, you know, in the Assyrian records is uh, from the Assyrian king is he makes this boast that, okay, well, during his conquest of Judea, you know, not only I destroyed these 46 strongholds, but, you know, some big, some small, but I captured over 200,000 uh, people, men and women uh, that I counted. So when we look at numbers like that historically, uh, because then it would say, well, if in you know, 701 BC, Jerusalem was that big. 
what's to say two, three hundred years later after they're coming back from exile that the land becomes populous. They go back to their farming um, and they at least had three sources of water by uh, 701 with Hezekiah's tunnel and uh, and the pool uh, to support that type of civilization. What, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I did, obviously, like you mentioned, I did cover that in the article with some citations on it too. Um, <clears throat> historians now, the way we do this, we do what's called uh, um, aerial surveys. So we, we, we use aerial surveys and uh, co coordinate that with on the ground provenance excavation, essentially. Uh, and when we combine those two things, we can actually determine what the agricultural capacity was uh, at particular times based on the type of agriculture and the, the fertility of the land and, and the quantity of the land and so on. So we can actually establish upper limits that you can't feed more than so many people. Uh, and also water is the same thing. It doesn't matter if you have three sources, there's a flow rate. There's only so much, only so much quantity you can get out of the ground at, at a particular time. And they didn't have desalination plants back then. So uh, this, this puts an upper limit. And that's why one of the reasons when the Romans came in, they built an aqueduct to Jerusalem specifically so the population could grow. Uh, and that, that's actually one of the reasons they did that. So they could port water from somewhere else in there. Uh, and the Romans did this for cities a lot. So cities grew rather large uh, under the Roman Empire that for this particular reason that they had the, the hydro economy was impressive. Uh, they, they were really doing what the Chinese were doing at the same time. Uh, and so <clears throat> that allowed explosions of population. But when I say explosion of population, it's still nowhere near that. Uh, as I pointed out, even in at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, like, so at the height of uh, water technology that we had at that time, Jerusalem was 15,000. Uh, that's it. Uh, and so that that's that's and, and there's indications of water economy and stuff that it couldn't even been half that uh, in before the Roman aqueduct came in. Uh, so, so we have limits on Jerusalem, but there, that's Jerusalem. And then Judea is limited by capacity there. And it, you can exceed capacity a little bit if you can really do well with trade. And so if you import a lot of your food, so that's like the city of Rome was not surviving on its own lands. Uh, it, it was importing shit tons of grain from Egypt, right? Uh, to keep the huge, and it was a very huge, uh, we have a lot of good data on how huge Rome was. Rome was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, uh, definitely approaching a million uh, population, which is incredible at the time. Uh, but there's, we see this massive economy uh, supporting it, so it's totally plausible. That wasn't going on in Judea. Uh, it, max uh, support that you could find in Judea was 50,000 for the whole region. Uh, and remember, like, only maybe a quarter of that at best are going to be able-bodied fighters. Um, and that's being, I think that's probably, I'm being too generous, is probably closer to like, uh, you know, an eighth or something. Uh, and so this region, and so what would happen, like when Alexander was besieging Tyre, uh, even insofar he, as he needed to even go into the Judean region for supplies, he would have just been doing it. Uh, so, you know, there's a difference between Jerusalem, you know, nervously watching Alexander go and loot uh, or, or requisition uh, <laughs> supplies, slaves or whatever, um, I mean, that's that's just what would happen. They go, well, okay, this is happening. We we need a we need a solution here. Uh, and so one of the obvious ones is let's make a treaty so that he's more nice about it. Basically, is what, <laughs> is what that would be the real politic of that situation. And if so, if you're smart, they're like, well, we we can't fight this guy. So let's let's make a deal with him. That's a better. And he he offers deals. He's a deal maker. So uh, so that that's why it makes sense for him, for them to do that. And then of course, indeed, support the the, the seizure of Tyre. Um, the um with regard you mentioned the number fudging so there, there's a number of reasons why 
we don't trust ancient sources and numbers. Now, the Sennacherib thing, I don't think the 200,000 was for Jerusalem or even Judea. I think that was for like the whole Eastern region. So, uh, so that, that I, I think, I can't remember the exact, what, what his exact wording is, but I don't think he, the, the Estelle contains the claim or the pyramid contains the claim that he took 200,000 from Judea. I think he, it was from a, a much wider, because he was fighting multi-front wars all, all over the place. Uh, so <clears throat> I think that's what the number comes from. But it's also possible that the official records added a zero, um, or what we would call <laughs> add a zero. Uh, it, we fully would expect that. That's not, uh, like, who's going to count to challenge him, right? So <laughs> so, uh, so we, we don't we don't implicitly trust those numbers either. Sometimes we can corroborate them independently, and so we know when they're reliable. But the historians are the worst. The historians, it's, they're always adding a zero. It's so common. Uh, and then we have the second problem of scribal transmission. A lot of these numbers are, have been distorted because numbers are one of the most common places scribes screw up. And it's easy for a simple error to make a huge difference in the number. Uh, so numbers are, are one of the most poorly preserved aspects of these manuscripts. Uh, we have some exceptions, so it's not like they all are, are tanked. But uh, but we, ha we have to be, we have to question the numbers because we can't trust necessarily that we that even what the author wrote has been transmitted down to us we can't trust that the author had any reliable sources like he's just or he's exaggerating or making something up um so that so that that's why we don't just implicitly trust numbers and text we, we look for corroborating evidence when and where we can and a lot of it's based on plausibility like what was the agricultural capacity of judea what was the water supply flow rate uh available at the time so uh that, that so we do those analyses and so we get to the other numbers that that are match uh the archaeological record no, that's no, that's helpful. Um, I think let's see, because I know we've covered uh, several of the points. Uh, I I do want to provide a little background, and hopefully, uh, some of the audience has read the articles because once again, Dr. Carey does a really great write up. Um, and and yeah, I I'd love I'd love to hear questions from the audience about the articles, uh, as also what we brought up today. I mean, we've we've expanded a little bit beyond what we did in the articles here, so. Yeah, if we, we could get some thoughts on the articles, because once again, I, I think, and from the very beginning of my engagement with Dr. Carrier, I think the articles allow us to expand more on our points, get our ideas out there, uh, big or small, have a better discussion than, you know, coming on and kind of, you know, trying to talk through 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, it gives the opportunity for precise wording, for structure. Uh, and and for citations, uh, so so the, that's why I love doing, way way prefer doing debates and exchanges on on in writing, because it's much more it's more information dense. You know, you get people have to sit and read it, but it's also for that reason better organized, um, better vetted. Like you will have you will leave out things that you think if you're if you're like spontaneously talking, like even I do this. Like I think like afterwards, like ah, that wasn't such I wasn't entirely accurate in the way I stated that. Right. So like if you do it off of the top of your head. You'll forget things. Uh, you you might be less precise and so on. Uh, and so I much prefer these these formats. And I'm so glad that you've you've uh, been supporting this project of doing them from time to time. Uh, I, I want I would like to see more people uh, invest in that. Yeah, and I think you know from the Christian's perspective, you know, and, and I kind of told uh, Dr. Carrier this a long time ago, and it, and I know in my conversations with uh, Derek as well. Um, I, I think it's important for Christian apologists to at least attempt to regain or engage in intellectual argument, have a much more academic discussion. I, I, uh, when I look at the history of Christianity, whether uh, 
will agree with Augustine of Hippo or Tertullian of Carthage. But when you look at those figures, they were trying to engage in academic discussion uh, with, uh, with the groups they were involved in. So, um, and I think a lot from my perspective, you know, since the Enlightenment, um, the evangelical scholarship has kind of shied away from actually addressing it. And uh, one of the great things about Dr. Carrier is uh, he has opened up his forum for actual academic uh, discussion uh, with those that are interested. So I, I do highly recommend actually sitting down with Dr. Carrier. Um, you know, I've told other Christians this, engage him on his blog, write out your ideas. Uh, Dr. Carrier is one of few scholars that will actually sit down with a kind of novice audience uh, and engage in a discussion as long as it's respectful and we're not attacking each other. So definitely uh, yeah. uh, tell other Christians or others to come out and do that. But I, I have to add the, the, you know, the footnote to that is that I do it for a living. Uh, yes. So, um, so I don't, I, so I get this a lot. I get tons and tons of people say, you know, puffing their chest and say, let's have a debate. It's like, no, I mean, are you going to fund it? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to put the money behind it. And to me, that means a lot because uh, I run into, especially people who have tinfoil hat stuff, like they'll, they'll be so adamant, like, why won't you debate this crazy, weird French theory or whatever? Uh, and I say, well, okay, so here's my rates. And they're totally reasonable rates. And they're, they don't, if they're not willing to put that much money, it, that's really paltry amount of money uh, to debate it, then it tells me that they don't really take seriously their own position, right? Because like, they, they don't really want to invest anything in this. Um, so when people do want to invest things in it, I take that very seriously because that communicates to me that like, like okay, yeah, you really, you really want to see this happen. You really do back this. You're, you're coming from a sincere position. Uh, and so, so that's valuable to me. And also, it's, like I said, it's how I make a living. So I, I appreciate people bringing me work uh, that it, as long as it's interesting. Uh, and your, your, the, your presentations are always interesting, even though I like almost always totally disagree with you on things. Uh, they're at least valuably stated, well, well composed and, uh, uh, and something that I can engage with on a serious basis rather than just some crazy rants, which, which you don't do crazy rants, which is great. So yeah. real, real quick, guys, I, I put the article in the comments, right? At least, at least I put the, you know, I searched Jonathan Sheffield here and there's like your debate response to him. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've done article, other debates too, people if, who don't know, we've done, done a ton right. of others. Um, but, but yeah, the, the first two pop up will be uh, Jonathan's statement. And then the second will be my analysis. I mean, there's a lot. You guys have talked a lot. I mean, that's well, a lot yeah, so for your blog. We did, um, we've done two other debates, I think, and those we went much longer. So like this was just two documents, his his opening and my response. And then we came on here to, to discuss it like we're doing now, which is also a good format, um, yeah. which we've done before as well. But the, the other ones, we, we extended the number of entries uh, quite a lot. So some of them have like a total of 12, 12 entries <laughs> yeah. between the two of us, so like six and six, which I find very valuable because if you keep the word count low uh, and then do a bunch of little ones, it it keeps focus. So you don't have like these word walls that you're throwing at each other. You actually mm -hmm. like have to be concise and get to right point. And then the depth comes from the number of entries. So I, I find that that debate format has been the most productive of any that I've, uh, I've ever done. Wow. Uh, and so uh, it's the format I want to extend. And I'm doing it now with the animal rights debate that I'm having about animal experimentation with a, a philosopher, Paul Bali. And that's happening now. And we're going to do uh, three and three. So we'll have six entries all together uh, with a much shorter word count. 
Uh, and so, uh, so that's, that's a format that I find very productive actually. Well, anyone can go click that link. And if you want to read it after, if you haven't already read it, that's something to work on looking into. Um, we do have a question in the super chat, of course, super chat your questions. I'd like to get some questions to our, uh, our guests here, Dr. Richard Carrier and Jonathan Sheffield and Gnostic informant, my friend, please go subscribe to him, by the way. Thank you for the super chat. He says, question for Sheffield. Do you think that it's probable? And then he goes down and he says, or is it really, uh, does it, does it make sense? Should have said, do you think it makes sense? Is what he said that Alexander was told that he was going to die by the Jews, Daniel, and he was okay with this. I mean, imagine a, a battle leader beast of a man, like being told your mortality is going to happen. Like, do you think it, it seems to make sense that that would be something he'd be okay with or even listen to? Can I briefly go to bat for Jonathan on this? Please, <laughs> Please um, thank you. Yeah. So what I understand what they're getting at is uh, if you can read these, there's the, there's the prophecy in Daniel two, incidentally, and then there's the prophecy in Daniel seven, Daniel seven is kind of like riffing on, uh, Daniel 2 in that respect, uh, expanding on it a bit. Um, either one could be used to argue to Alexander that he's going to have a great empire, etc. Uh, my, my perspective, and I even mentioned this in my analysis, is that uh, is that if that happens, those on the presupposition that this hypothesis is true, like so let's say Daniel 1 to 6 was presented to Alexander in the 4th century, and, or even written, completely forged for the specific purpose of presenting to Alexander, uh, when they did that, they would spin it as his is the great eternal empire that's mentioned at the end. But to their own people, they would say, actually, that's God's empire that's coming next, right? Because they did the same thing with Antiochus, right? They had this whole thing. There's the, like the, they would, they would mix, sell it in a cryptic way so that it looks like you could fudge or interpret it as, uh, a, you know, praise of Antiochus. But really, it's a dig on Antiochus, right? So that I, I think that would, that would be plausible in context. I don't think that's what happened, uh, but that, that's different. Like probability and plausibility... It takes less evidence to get to plausible than it does to get to probable. Uh, so I don't think that's probably what happened, but it is plausibly what happened. So I, don't, I, I think they could sell the prophecy in a way that wouldn't offend Alexander and would, would uh, aggrandize him, essentially. So that, that's that's my my take. I, I know that's supporting uh, Jonathan's position a bit. <laughs> I, Jonathan? Yeah, I, I guess from my standpoint, um, even if we given, um, you know, chapters one through six, seven, eight, um, you know, existed at that time. I, I, I do think, you know, these are largely um, prophecies that require a lot of interpretations. Um, and I think um, the Jews at that period, I, I think if anything, seeing Alexander come down, um, you know, along that coast um, may have created discussions. Um, and if they had chapter eight where, it sort of gives more of an interpretation of, uh, you know, this is going to be a, a Greek king that's going to take him down. You know, they, they would still have to deal. It, it doesn't say Alexander's name. Uh, and, the, and the four kingdoms are kind of, you know, prophetically interwined in that. So how much they would have understood in terms of, you know, this may be the guy that uh, this the scripture we have may be referring to. Uh, so there may have been an internal discussion um, and as a ploy to secure uh, the state of Judea and Jerusalem uh, for the preceding generations, you know, 
it, it, it does go to motive to use whatever you have, even though I think, you know, drumming up a fake uh, would have just been bad business and probably rather not do it than uh, do it because I think that's mutually assured destruction. So I, I would say either they didn't understand what it said or maybe they had some ideas, but I think when they saw what Alexander was coming down, you know, maybe there was an internal deliberation. Is this the guy that the document is referencing? Because it doesn't specifically say his name. So, hmm. um, I, but I don't think he would tell him. Yeah. By the way, uh, this is only one aspect in God's design. Uh, you're going to be done soon. Uh, and then, uh, actually, you're only going to be living to 32. And by the way, it's not your descendants that are going to take over your kingdom. <laughs> your generals are going to divide it up a amongst themselves. And then yeah. um, they're going to forget about your passion for India and Afghanistan. And they're, they're going to focus on what they really wanted to in the very beginning, the whole coastline. So. Interesting. Thank you for that super chat and you guys answering the question. Really appreciate that. Um, so nobody else has uh, thrown anything at us in terms of questions or super chats, but I'd okay. like to ask. Oh, go for it. Yeah. No, I was just going to mention um, me and Jonathan had a talk yesterday. We've been kind of chit chatting about it. And uh, we talk about scholars on chapters one through six in Daniel being potentially older Aramaic, if you will, or at least some of most of that being Aramaic. Um, the question then, what Jonathan pointed out was, well, we have uh, chapter 8, and chapter 8 is talking about this dividing of the kingdom and what's going on here. So maybe we can get into that and have you and him like take a, a focus on this because you're willing to grant chapters 1 through 6, but there's no way in hell you're willing to go, all right, chapter 8 was also back no, then. Yeah. <clears throat> and we could get into that, but we do have a super chat. So whenever... If you want to respond to that and then we can get into Yeah, that. I would say, uh, well, just, just br briefly on that, uh, this does get discussed, I think, in the previous stuff. Uh, so yeah. It didn't come up in this this one exchange that we're talking about today, but in my previous analysis of uh, the debate that Sheffield had with the other scholars, the Assyriologist and um, the biblical historian, um, the, I, I do mention this a little bit, but uh, there, there is, for example, there's a chiasmus that gets constructed. You can show the way there's a sort of shell structure or onion structure in Daniel that crosses these two halves. Um, but it doesn't exist in the first six chapters. So I, when the authors added the next six chapters, they actually found a way to create a chiasmus out of the previous material. So there's a, that, sometimes that chiasmus is argued as evidence that the, the, past, the two halves were original uh, or were composed at the same time. But if you start from the hypothesis that they weren't, there is no chiasmus. Uh, but if you start from the hypothesis that they were, one gets constructed. So I think the 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 issue of chapter eight, I think, is a product of the attempt to actually make a unity with chapters one to six. I think this was an intentional design of the people who stitched them together, if that's what happened. I personally think it's slightly more probable that the entire thing was forged in the second or in, in the second century BC. Uh, but I, I give a healthier probability to it being the two halves theory, the fourth century and then the second century. Uh, I just don't think that's the most probable, but I, I do uh, assign it a respectable possibility. And you can explain the structure on either hypothesis. So that, that's why the structure does not argue for either hypothesis or against either hypothesis. It, it fits both, basically. Hmm. Okay. Did you want to comment on that before I pull the super chat up? Oh, no, you can pull the super chat because I, I know that was one of the 
older points that we had already gone over. Yeah. Uh, and, and Dr. Carey has written on this as well. So okay. yeah. thank you, Endo, for the super chat. Endo says Isaiah 44, 45 prophesied a king of Persia named Cyrus who would allow Jews to return home from exile in Babylon written 150 years before thoughts. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and you could either go first, Dr. Carrier uh, or mine to, to give your thoughts. Uh, Cause I know this was more. I'll just one, one sentence, my side of it, which is yeah. that uh, the mainstream consensus is that these, the Isaiah was written in multiple layers by different authors over a long period of time. So uh, verses like that were added later. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this, but this isn't what our particular exchange was about this specific thing. I throw a bibliography in. So people who want to like, look at the reasons why scholars come to these conclusions and it's talk, it's Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah and Trito Isaiah. So there's, there's the, this whole structural theory of how Isaiah got, grew as a book over time. Um, for, for people who are interested in that, there is a bibliography in my article, but, uh, th that isn't something that I, I specifically went into, uh, in this particular debate though. Yeah, and, and and I think my perspective is uh, really discussing the the political reality that pervades these situations. Now, uh, as a person, you know, I'm probably not the biggest fan of Carl Smith. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> he, he does have a lot of controversial views, especially against the Jews. But I do like the political theory of his uh, friend and enemy distinction that the, the ruler would uh, need to, um, you know, decide on in a state of exception. So, you know, you have the new kingdom. And, uh, you know, one of the things I did point out in the article in reference to Cyrus is, you know, Dr. Carrier does give, you know, from what I thought at face value, a very good explanation that, you know, hey, Cyrus wants to do it all. He doesn't want to cause any commotion, uh, you know, hey, give everyone what they want back, let everyone, you know, operate independently and not try to come together and uh, uh, unite against me or reconstitute Babylon. Uh, my, my perspective on that, I was like, yeah, face value. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It's good uh, policy across the board. I think my uh, my thought on the process is. I started seeing all these other benefits. So obviously, just like we see with the, the Jews coming back to the area, you know, there, you know, there are reports from Ezra that the people of the area, because remember, they, they moved out. Uh, and then you have a small minority of Jews because they were doing very well in Babylon. And it's like, why am I going to leave all this wealth? And so they come back. Um, and the problem I have with is not, just the coming back, but I think it was more around you get to rebuild your uh, structure where you get to be rebellious to the kings again, and uh, now, now we're going to have to deal with that. And there was a lot uh, in Ezra, it's reported that, you know, like the Samaritans and you had some of the Babylonians, you had the Lebanese, and a lot of people that were against this were like, hey, why do they get entitlement over this area? We're here, we want to participate, religious freedom of all, but it looks like you're siding with this particular group. So, you know, for me, what I'm trying to investigate is, okay, we, you know, we have this claim, you know, that, okay, it came in. Um, and I think Josephus' report isn't that the Jews brought it to him, but uh, Cyrus actually 
got wind of Isaiah. I think that's how it, it reads. So it wasn't, and then he calls a Jewish delegation before him just to get some more context. So, um, so for me, it wasn't just the, the allow home. It's, you know, taking in that political theory of who's going to be your friends, who's going to be your enemies. And once again, we have this situation where, you know, the Jews are the friends in this situation, which I thought was odd uh, given, you know, the Lebanese would be more important or the Babylonians or maybe even the Samaritans. Uh, so I'll definitely uh, allow uh, Dr. Kerry to get his thoughts on there. Um, just from yeah, that absolutely. political reality uh, that I was trying to uh, talk to. Yeah, and political reality is what we got to look to, right? So the, the genius of the Cyrus strategy uh, hinges on doing the exact opposite. It hinges on having basically division. He wants there to be division. He doesn't want to consolidate and grow the power of the Lebanese. He wants to break shit up. He wants a bunch of little satrapies because then he can pit them against each other or and in exactly this way, right? So he, he does not want to kowtow to anyone who would make those arguments. And I, we don't know, we don't have this comparable literature for other ethnic groups that this was happening to. So I would not doubt that this was the same kind of argument that was being heard all over the Persian empire because of this decree. So what happens is like the Babylonians would, would invade, take people, loot their stuff and, and then bring them into exile. Which means at that moment, you've got about 50 years of new stakeholders moving into these abandoned territories and trying to claim them. So by actually claiming that you're going to restore the ethnicities to their original lands and temples and stuff like that, you are actually stepping on the toes of a bunch of people who tried to exploit the gap. Uh, so, and that's, that had to have happened all over the empire. We, we just don't have the literatures of these little other arguments that were going on. I'm sure everybody who's a stakeholder in this was bitching and moaning about, uh, about his thing. Uh, but that's, that's exactly indica indicative of his policy working because that's what he wants. Uh, is he he doesn't want to like give in to these these new stakeholders he wants to shrink them he wants to actually divide them and have much more different groups who all support him because they're all being granted this boon right so they they aren't going to go against cyrus when they're getting such this, this great uh benefit from him they it makes them kindly disposed to him while at the same time splitting up it's the tower of babel dividing everybody even more which makes it easier to rule uh so the politics of it make complete sense and is quite clever uh, on top of that is the economic genius of it, is that what he's doing is he, with the Babylonians, we're basically looting and, and reducing the economic productivity of these regions, uh, even of people, right? And so Cyrus comes in and says, no, look, I'm going to have big business investment in these enterprises, send tons of personnel back there, stoke these engines, get these engines running again, because he's going to skim off the top. Right. So this is this is actually business investment. This is good business is to restoke these these power centers of these economic power centers so that he can get more tribute out of them. Uh, so so it was a really clever thing. And, and he explicitly alludes to all of these points in his own decree. So uh, it was a really good move, but it was clearly a move that was empire wide. It wasn't focused on it. There's nothing particular about his doing this for the Jews. He did the same exact things for all these other uh, ethnicities in his empire. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, guys. I cannot pronounce your name, and it looks like it's in Arabic. Thank you for the super <laughs> chat. Did not Alexander have horns in the Danielic text like the Quran Dil Karnan? I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. How do you pronounce that uh, the, the word? I think a lot of people uh -huh. are saying that this is actually Daniel in the Quran, uh, the two-horned uh, figure. 
or it's either Cyrus or Daniel, oh. something like that. Are you aware of this? I, I this isn't the thing that I've focused on, so I, I really can't comment. Okay. No, I, I, you know, the only thing I think I there, there's imagery, there's horn imagery in Daniel, uh, but but it's all metaphor, so it's it's not. It's not claiming that Daniel showed up with actual horns. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I, I think I don't understand the question, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. I, the only thing I, I think I've brought up in the past is, you know, I, I believe in the Quran there's a sort of reference uh, to, you know, Alexander and some wall. But, I mean, there, there's no other literature or any type of uh, – mentioned so yeah I, i'm not sure where this that's is another going. thing i have not looked into is references to daniel in the quran quranic studies is not my area so i've, I've only I've written some uh muslim counter apologetics but i i don't i'm not an expert in uh, medieval arabic or any of that stuff yeah. so I'm, I'm not the guy to ask uh, yeah. you know, there, there are other experts who who have studied uh quranic literature and would, would know more about that huh okay well i appreciate the super chat so technically, for that first answer, though, and it being written before, you would say, no, that was written after. That text was added I say later. that. Obviously, Jonathan yeah. says the very no, <laughs> He thinks it's prophetic, right? Correct, yeah. The, this boils down to what convinces – this is like a question to ask you, Jonathan. It's like, why assume that is written before? Like what – and this is more of an epistemological question, I guess, because I'm like – I'm asking you, like, what makes you think this is true? Like – what actually makes you convinced? Like if you ran to any other literature and you ran into their prophecies, let's just say, would you approach this the same way and go, you know, uh, actually the Chinese uh, figured this out uh, 300 years before they knew that this was going to happen. And uh, sure enough, it did or, or whatever, like what convinces you to say, all right, this really is a prophecy. This is really true. Yeah, so and and one of the things I do want to bring up because obviously there are uh, epistemological differences between Dr. Carrier and my and and once again this doesn't take anything away from Dr. Carrier at all in the sense that he's a great historian. I ask him to get involved in these concepts because he, I mean he he provides great insights. Obviously we have different worldviews. Um, I do understand as a member of the Anglican tradition, I'm already predisposed to uh, you know my Calvinistic uh, worldviews, which speaks to some of the themes in the article. Uh, obviously, you know I'm already predisposed to a non-epicurean view of God. So you know our my views on the incarnation or God's active role in history isn't uh, looking out there from an observer just while the wheels are spinning. So, uh, so first, I, I do recognize my own uh, influences growing up within the Anglican tradition. Uh, one thing I, I would say um, about the Anglican tradition, it, it does have a strong empirical uh, tradition or, or legacy about it. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, Francis uh, Bacon, when we look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, Berkeley or, or Berkeley, uh, hopefully I didn't pronounce that wrong. I know there's two different ways to say it. Oh, the, uh, the philosopher? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I think the, it's yeah, Berkeley, but I, I'm not an expert in that literature. So yeah, no, <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, so there is, you know, there is this school of thought. I mean, John Locke, uh, you know, is one of the great British empiricists. 
he was obviously influenced uh, in his writings by Richard Hooker in his laws of ecclesiastical policy. So th there is this strong tradition. And I know a lot of people ask me about, you know, why do you, uh, you know, quote like William Winston? Well, you know, he, he's part of, you know, this empirical tradition that we're a part of. Yes, we do have our theological worldviews. Um, now, in particular to this, um, and, you know, it kind of goes into the, the background of why I chose some of the sources uh, that I, I did, um, you know, which really goes to this problem that I struggle with. And, um, you know, when we talk about the Jews or trying to explain them now, in the article, you know, I'm, I'm pinpointing certain junctures at history. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but, you know, I, I noticed that there was something different um, here for me. And so when I engage, uh, you know, people like Mark Twain, uh, you know, for me, what I liked about Mark Twain is, and anyone who's read Huckleberry Finn is, you know, he's dealing with some real issues in that book. You know, he, he's dealing with slavery and the perception, you know, from a, a Southern boy, Huckleberry Finn, and this journey down the Mississippi River where, you know, uh, Huckleberry Finn doesn't look at uh, Jim as property anymore, but he starts to look at him as a human being. And, you know, for Mark Twain, who grew up in the South, who was part of the Confederacy for, I think, a couple of weeks. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to get out those insights into the human condition. Um, so he, he's grappling with big philosophies of his day. Uh, he kind of makes fun of the romantic uh, period at the end of it. Uh, so he, he's dealing with the philosophies of his day. I kind of look at him as, a, you know, one of the good intellectuals after the Civil War. And I think... He has done some good stuff for history in the sense that uh, getting uh, Ulysses S. Grant's uh, works published, uh, whether there was good reasons or bad reasons uh, for it. I wasn't part of those conversations, but he talked him out of a deal. Uh, and those works are very important for historical analysis since you have the guy who, you know, basically won it uh, for us. Or Well, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so that's why I always appeal to the North. But... Um, you know, so for me, he recognized something about the Jews that I see in myself that it's like, wow, you know, we, this does seem strange. It doesn't mean is natural design by some God that's orchestrating all these events, but he thought there was something weird. Um, you know, the same thing with Nikolai Berdiev, you know, he, he, he does come out of that period of the Russian revolution. He was a serious Marxist and, you know, he did adhere to the Vienna Circle and its principles. And, you know, he, he goes through a study where he himself has trouble. Now, does that resonate in the real world? Is there any logic to that? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but he, he goes through some of the problems that I see in trying to explain these events. And that's the saying I default naturally to a God hypothesis. But um, I do want to investigate it. And when I look at these series of events or what maybe I see as statistical anomalies is, you know, it, it, it leads me back to my conclusion. Now, whether that's right, whether part of it is my Anglican background uh, being predisposed to a, a, I mean, Gary could tell you the Calvinistic uh, worldview and maybe, you know, Derek, too. 
is all about predestination, oh. uh, God's natural proviance. It, it, it ties into this whole argument. So I am aware of you know my views on the incarnation or God's act role in history. And but it is tough for me. Uh, and I know this conversation came up in Dr. Carrier's blog where I look at passages from Isaiah, and it's hard for me, whatever that reason is, that I don't look at 1948 uh, and tie that back. I'm like, man, now am I gullible? Am I seeing? Is this a mirage? And it, and it's fun. This, this is a great point because I want to. We have a we have a question in the in the form of a super chat. I'm taking super chats if you want to ask a question. But but, but I do want Dr. Carrier to respond to. But I want That's, to give him my background because yeah, you know, just like I select Mark Twain, uh, Bertie Ave, now. Dr. Carrier in his writings, I tell everyone to look at his writings, is uh, Dr. Carrier is, uh, has big ideas like this too, as uh, he's really able to explain what's happening in history. And I find this in his articles, and that's why I'm impressed and want to engage, because the same interaction I get with uh, a Twain or a Bertier, even from a different perspective, their insights into the human condition or in Dr. Carrier's case, you know, the, the history, the politics and everything that's going on. I, I, I think Dr. Carrier's made some great strides. And I say that having to spoke with Dr. Ehrman uh, and other thinkers in his poll, but I think Dr. Carrier brings something a little bit more to the table which is why I engage him in these discussions. Well, dude, thank you so much. You know that I had to let you say what you had to say. And I just wanted to flip the, the question around without making it, so to speak, directly critical of you or what you think. But Dr. Carrier, why don't you accept that Isaiah was written uh, or this particular thing was written 150 years before it actually is supposedly happening? Because just to get two different epistemologies here, you can see how one is saying, here's why I don't accept yeah, that, yeah. And, and, and vice versa. <clears throat> uh, for people who want to dive into that, like I said, there's a bibliography on this that I put into my article uh, in this. Uh, and, and I mean, it's there's stylistic, structural, and historical reasoning as to how Isaiah is, is argued to be uh, a multi-century document, uh, in much in the way that Homer is, for example, um, using a lot of the similar points. Um, so... So I, I won't go too far into that. If people want to go into that, they can they can go look research why people believe in Deutero Isaiah and not just Isaiah. Uh, so and that's a pretty mainstream view. But I want to touch on what uh, Sheffield was talking about. People might not know uh, why he mentioned uh, Twain and Berdeyev right just now. Uh, if, if you if you haven't read the articles, um, and one of the reasons was like one of the points I made is like you can't cite these as authorities because they're not historians and they predate modern historical methodology, uh, or I should say contemporary historical methodology, and. Uh, what Sheffield's talking about there is I want to make a distinction between historiography and history. So historiography is the history of an idea. So like you could talk about this hypothesis about the Jews, uh, that there's something special or exceptional about them, uh, that they're unusually blessed or whatever. Uh, uh, but you can, you can cite Bardiev and Twain and Smith, for example, as historical examples of this idea. Uh, but you can't cite them as authorities on it being historically correct because none of them are qualified to actually comment on that. But uh, Twain is brilliant. You know, he's a brilliant author, brilliant wit, brilliant political commentator. Um, but he's not he was not a trained historian. And even if he was, 
the methods of history, even in the late 19th century, were pretty much garbage. They were terrible. Uh, there, there was a huge shift in methodology, making history more scientific in the early 20th century that really, like the, one of the main dividing points is around 1950. It's like after 1950, things got much more sophisticated than had been before. Uh, and so now anything before 1950 needs to be revetted uh, by the new methodology. So, um, so that was the reason why I, I pointed that out. Uh, there's nothing wrong with citing like the history of your own idea, uh, but that doesn't support the truth of your idea. Uh, so that's, that's why I don't find that as a useful uh, thing. You could say, well, you know, other people have noticed this, but here's what, I, here's what I'm noticing. And that would be enough, really. Um, you can't really cite the authorities or you can't cite Twain and Bertie Evan Smith as authorities on this. Uh, they really aren't. Uh, they have ideas, but whether those ideas are, are valid or not is a completely different thing. Um, with regard to blessedness, uh, I, I, I mean, if, if we're going to like pick, uh, pick people that way, if we're going to say, well, who, who does it seem has had the greatest blessing uh, of the gods and, and you'd have a hard time arguing for anyone beating out India or China. Uh, these are the two longest standing uh, nations in history with their, with the religions as the oldest on earth. Uh, and so, uh, you know, no one's ever conquered or broken up China. No one's ever conquered. Lots of people have tried same with, uh, same with India, tons of invasions, but here it is still there, India. Um, now, I don't believe this. I don't think there's any divine intervention explaining the, the miraculous invulnerability of India and China. I think I can explain this structurally with ordinary natural causes. Uh, and, and I can do the same with the history of the Jews, too. So, so I think that's why I don't, I don't buy into like this miraculous narrative. I think we can, we can explain it in ordinary uh, historical terms. And, and there's nothing miraculous. In, you pick any particular sequence of events in the history of, of uh, the Jews, and you, get, you can see why things happen the way they did. There, there's no point where you can say, oh, God must have intervened to change this. There, there isn't. Like you, you, can, you can explain the whole thing without with it, no God intervention whatsoever. Uh, and so that's why I don't buy into that particular narrative. I also, of course, I argue that it's a non sequitur. Even if it were true, it doesn't mean that the, the, the Jewish authors like Josephus never told us a fib. Uh, so uh, that, Interesting. that's Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Scott Turf, thank you for the super chat. I forget which group is which in the first century pharisees sadducees can you rename them like the seinfeld like seinfeld in the garage scene your mother is a i, I haven't seen it but it sounds like it's I'm, heading it's in too long ago i can't remember how that scene plays out so uh i'm sure i've seen it it's just i've not revisited it um uh yeah so no no i, I can't i can't go to the seinfeld point um <laughs> But it depends on what you what you want to know. Like, what do you want to know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Uh, also, we're, we're not entirely confident we know as much as we think we know because uh, a lot of our information comes from Josephus, and he's not the best organizer of facts on these things. Um, so in short, though, the Pharisees were predominantly the, the rabbinate. So like the, that became basically the authors of the Talmud later that, that sort of evolved into the rabbinical Judaism. And the Pharisees were divided amongst many sects, but the two leading sects were the Shammites and the Hillelites, uh, were the conservatives and the liberals uh, correspondingly. The liberals won out eventually, but you still see some of the conservative opinions get added as footnotes, uh, kind of like like Supreme Court dissents. You know, you like give the Supreme Court decision, and then you have the one judge who says, "No, fuck you," uh, and has his own his own thing. Uh, so we have that. We have the Talmud is mostly recording the Hillelite view, and then you'll see a Shammaiite view just tacked on at the end. And then these jokers say this instead. Uh, so so that's the, that's the way we break down the Pharisees. Uh, 
they're they're much more the preservers of the oral law. They, these are the Mishnah people, basically. Uh, the Sadducees seem to have been more into the religion rather than the law. Uh, so as far as and, and Josephus contradicts himself on this. So sometimes he's saying the Sadducees are the most brutal enforcers of the law, and other times he's saying that they they were less interested in it. So uh, it's it's hard to really nail that down. But the Sadducees Josephus portrays as being similar to Epicureans. They had like a real politic interpretation of, of God. Uh, so he's kind of accusing them of being atheists in a way. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought that was metaphor for the, they, they were realists and that they thought the resurrection talk was all metaphor for the resumption of the supremacy of Israel as a nation. So, uh, so the Sadducees were more looking at resurrection as resurrection of Israel rather than resurrection of actual individual people after they die. Uh, and, and so there's various other like views of this. And you see this in the book of Acts, right? Like the uh, book of Acts shows Paul pitting the Pharisees against the Sadducees on this. And you see this in the gospels as well. Jesus has to deal with this, the, this sort of argument over, is there a resurrection or not? And the Sadducees have all their polemics about why the resurrection is a ridiculous idea. Uh, and so you see Jesus interact with that, uh, in there. So the, and, and the Sadducees were predominantly associated with the priesthood. So, uh, they were more in charge of the temple. Uh, than the Pharisees were, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so that's that. I mean, that's the best I can I can sketch. There's other like minor details about these. I have actually I have a breakdown of all the known sects. They're up to 32, actually, uh, or at least up to 30. Um, definitely at least 10, uh, and possibly as many as 30 sects of Judaism before the Jewish War. And I have them all laid out with footnotes with scholarship on on each one. If you want to go into depth on these, uh, and wow. that's. In, the book, The Empty Tomb. So in the book, The Empty Tomb was edited by Robert Price and Jeff Lauder. Uh, it has a bunch of chapters by a bunch of authors. It has three chapters by me that still hold up pretty well on different theories of explaining the resurrection story. And one of them I go into uh, uh, the different views of resurrection. So when I talk about the spiritual body of Christ, what did that mean? Uh, and, and to do that, I go into the background of Jewish diversity, explaining like there was a lot of disagreement among the Jews on a lot of things. Uh, a lot of sectarian division. And so, and so I created kind of like a, a canned encyclopedia of them, basically. So I do have a few sentences on each and then if you want, and then sources. So if you want to go into more detail on what we know about these sects, most of them, we know almost nothing about. We just know that they disagreed with everybody else, but not on what or in what way. Uh, but some of them we can reconstruct more detail. And, and so there's, that's, if people are interested in that, that's the book to get. There's a lot of other valuable material in it as well. So it's, it's, it's worthwhile in general. Interesting. Did you did you want to just move to the next super chat here, Jonathan? Or yeah, no, I I think uh, Dr. Carrier explained that well. I, you know, <laughs> I I'd pointed out two main groups because you know that's where a lot of the the fight, infighting uh, was about, especially with Paul uh, who represented one of the particular groups. But yeah, we could move on to the next. Your mother is a uh, hilarious. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> want to know what where that phrase is. <laughs> I, I want to hear. It. Hey, uh, Indo, thank you for the super chat. He says, you better put the smackdown on CC tomorrow, Richard. Oh, Canadian Catholic, Canadian Catholic is what they're referring to. Yeah. Yes, I will be live on Canadian Catholic show. It'll be short. Uh, he's only paid for 40 minutes, so that's all we're going to do. We'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. He's a bit of a character, um, so who knows? It'll, it'll, yeah. It, it might be a waste of time. It might be interesting. I have no idea. We're, we're, we're going to go toe-to-toe on the history of City of Jesus. We'll see see what happens there in 40 uh, minutes <laughs> yeah. yeah good luck you guys will barely scratch the surface unless he goes straight in i don't know we'll see 
it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I know that much. He doesn't like me at all now. <laughs> uh, I just I just went on Nathan's channel one day. Anyway, we'll spare that. This is uh, your guys' time. That's why we're doing this stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, Constellation Pegasus, thank you for the super chat. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. When you die, you're dead forever? Uh, well, that's what Josephus says, right? We actually don't have any writings from Sadducees. Uh, so we're kind of like, and what we have is we have Josephus and then we have the Talmud, which rags on fair uh, Sadducees constantly. Uh, and so, so we have stuff from the Pharisees who hated the Sadducees and we have Josephus who I think was a Pharisee. He said he studied under them all he claims and then settled on, on Phariseeism. Um, but, uh, so anyway, um, that's, that's what our sources say. And if, if we understand this in context, what it would have been is that they probably were annihilationists they probably thought that people don't live forever uh but the 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 people live forever right is is there so they were more like real worldists this worldists in that sense uh now it's entirely possible the sadducees also did believe in a like a disembodied afterlife a, a heaven like other people did but um but the the all the sources the talmud and, and josephus claim they didn't uh claim they're very much against an afterlife belief uh it would be interesting to actually have a treatise from them to see like how they conceptualized it because this is actually highly unusual uh in the ancient world uh to find like you you find the rationalists right the greek rationalists even they were divided on whether you survive death uh, uh but but the hardcore ones were usually atheists so the question is like here's sadducees who are hardcore religionists uh not buying into an afterlife belief of any kind that that's really rare uh, in the history of religions. So, uh, so that's why I, now I'm not sure if we're being told the truth about what the Sadducees <laughs> taught. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. We don't have any writings from them. So uh, all we can go on is what we're told. Hmm. Interesting. Any comment, Jonathan? No, it, it, it comes down to the same point. We, we don't have their actual, uh, commentary on these particular ideas. So, um, I, I mean, you know, one of the big groups were, you know, you have all these little debates on how you were washing your hands. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of minutia in that, you know, because in the Gospels, you know, some of that comes in there about, you know, not washing the hands. Well, no, both Jews wash their hands. So from a Jewish perspective in the Gospels, they're not talking about, yeah, they're not washing their hands. It's a particular way about you doing it. It's, it's almost like... Uh, how the Roman Catholics signed the cross versus the Greek Orthodox. You know, it, it's one of those minutiae's uh, in there. So when you read in the Gospels about, oh, you know, why aren't they washing their hands? Why aren't you washing it according to this prescribed way that we do? So that's where I think it goes back to Dr. Carrier's point. Uh, without really understanding their commentary on this, is this one of the minutiae's uh, that they drew out of that conversation? Oh, they just don't believe in the resurrection. So. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Kristen, what is up? She says, if you're saving 10% on your income by switching to atheism, support myth vision. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've got theists, by the way, who support myth vision, who, who, who are there, who help support. And one of them's on the channel right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, what, once again, I, you know, I've, I, I've shared views with a lot of people, you know, uh, I'm not big on the whole uh, gifting and ties. I, I think it's a, a modern day version of uh, uh, indulgences that are being uh, pushed uh, within the evangelical community. I, I do like to support good causes. Uh, you know, 
I just had to buy my son uh, some video games from PS5. So uh, just because, um, you know, a Christian doesn't mean I can't support uh, other secular activities. <laughs> but, you know, Derek, once again, does really great uh, work, uh, you know, on putting together stuff. So I'm, I'm supporting the person, you know, um, you know, with Dr. Carey, he does really great uh, work on uh, these projects I engage him with. So it's um, that's where I find value. Um, I, sometimes I don't find value in giving to a, a building fund, uh, you know, especially one that I'm not living in since I got to pay rent. Uh, so that, that's some of my views on the gifts and tithing. Um, I do think it's a modern day uh, indulgences that are being spread, except uh, even though they're promoting all these benefits, uh, I only see one party getting the benefit. So I, I haven't got my private plane <laughs> yet. <laughs> so right, uh, yeah. that's where I use my money for other things as part of my, uh, my ministry. So engaging uh, with other philosophers and historians uh, can be better use than uh, given to someone's building. Yeah, fund. you know, that's, that's actually a really good point uh, to, to, to reflect on that from the other side, right? Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of live debates, uh, like in, in studio, in stage debates. Uh, I do them. I'm good at them. People, if so I never organize them. If someone wants to hire me to do one, I will do one. Uh, and there's tons of examples on YouTube. You can go find me in a million debates on this stuff. Uh, because I find them mostly gamesmanship, mostly rhetoric. They're, they're not really, uh, they don't really get substantive. Um, but uh, but one, one value of them is that if I, so for example, my debate with William Lane Craig, uh, when else am I going to fill a room with a thousand Christians who will, who will listen to me for two hours, right? Uh, and uh, similar to the to the, the debate I had with Hassanin Rajabali, uh, it was me and um, uh, Dan Barker and Rajabali and uh, Michael Corey, uh, which Hassanin Rajabali is a Muslim apologist, so we filled an literally an audience of a thousand Muslims. Like when, mm -hmm. when is that ever going to happen other than a debate? Now, yes, they're trying to knock down my ideas and, and, you know, Hassanin Rajabali did the whole fire and brimstone kind of preacher thing, angry <laughs> preacher routine on stage. But nonetheless, uh, all my ideas got heard. Right. So, and so that, that I think it, it's, I'm reaching an audience that I wouldn't normally reach. So that is better than preaching to the choir in a way. Right. And so at Sheffield, what he's saying is the exact same thing is that if you're just Christians talking to each other, all you're doing is reinforcing the faith that you already have. You're not evangelizing. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually when evangelists like missionaries, they want to control the, the narrative. Uh, they're not, they don't want to let the other side have their say or take or whatever. And so that limits the ways they can evangelize. Uh, and in ways that I think are undermining of, of their goal. So if they have an actual, like a good thing, they have a good product to market. Uh, Supporting and getting into the interfaith dialogue actually is the way to do it because you're going to get audiences that you would not, that wouldn't pay attention to you otherwise. Uh, and so, and then it's just a question of do your ideas hold up, right? So, like that—that's what I think is actually the best way to pr proceed. As Jonathan uh, would say, your ideas. That, that's the, ideas. That, that's up. the intrusive R from growing up in Brooklyn, New York. So just to let everyone know. I had to do it. Fascinating. Do it. All right. Yeah. He's my buddy. I always, sometimes he'll pronounce things Josephus. And I'm like, Josephus. But you know, I got to love the guy. Um, We got a couple more super chats. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, all right. okay. it's all right. Constellation Pegasus says, seems early Judaism was fractured from the top to the bottom, like Christianity today. It's been fractured from the top to bottom from the very beginning. 
Would you like to comment on that? Maybe start with Jonathan and then Carrier. Yeah, I, um, I, I know from the perspective, you know, Christianity was very divided, very from the very beginning. I, I think we see this in the, the literature very early on about, uh, you know, just when are we going to observe the date of Easter? And, you know, out in Asia Minor and in uh, uh, over in the West with Rome, there, there was a big uh, diversion of that. Uh, when you look at our liturgical uh, calendars, I know Constantine was trying to set up something that was more uniform throughout Christianity. Um, you know, we don't even have that the liturgical sense. You know, different communities uh, and churches, you know, were setting up something that was um, the same idea, but a little different. Um, Obviously, the Aryans coming in and you have all these different groups, uh, just like the Protestants are today. I, I, I mean, I mean, you have a conversation with uh, three Protestants, you get, what, five groups out of it. Um, so it, it, it has been very uh, sectionalized. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, this goes back from the very beginning. Uh, the Church of Alexandria was always fighting with Rome. We see this in Asia Minor uh, from some of the disputes coming out there. Uh, North Africa, another epicenter of Christianity. You see these big debates with Rome. Uh, you see it in Alexandria. You see it at Antioch. Bishops are being disposed, uh, deposed of. Um, you know, you have the Aryan group comes on scene and Constantine, and it seems like Eusebius is secretly supporting them. Uh, so uh, there's always been infighting. There's always been diverse uh, uh, opinions, um, j just like with uh, Judaism. You see that same sectarian breakout um, throughout Christian history. Now, yeah, we're united, I guess, uh, with the scriptures in some regards, since uh, Roman Catholics or the Ethiopian Church may have fewer, more or less than others. Uh, so there is some binding consensus on some of the creeds uh, obviously after the reformation um it, it, just, it just went out the door and i think this was the fear that uh, uh you open up to some of these ideas and all of a sudden now you have three thousand different groups uh, if not more uh so yes it um is that by design is that better so you have no controlling interest uh to so you look at the political ramifications for them. Uh, better to be independent and not having uh, a universal pope or a universal bishop overseeing because what comes out of that? So I, I, I think there is some benefit, whether that's by design or just you have all these competing ideas and no one's ever going to give a go along. But yes, we've seen that throughout uh, Christian history. So we got three more uh, super chats after this question wise, but Dr. Kerry, would you like to address this Judaism fracture from top to bottom? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, ironically, Judaism became less fractured over time uh, before the Jewish war it was hugely fractured way more than the gospels represent. Um, after the Jewish war, there was more consolidation. Uh, there was kind of like the, it was kind of like the, the selection event that really selected out a lot of uh, movements. So Judaism, it has a lot of very small fringe outbreak sects right but uh, since then but the majority of judaism is really two sects now which is orthodox and reform and uh reform judaism is a really big tent view so it's inclusive of a lot of diversity 
and so that because of that they don't they don't expel people for having unorth you know quote unquote unorthodox views within reform judaism uh it, it's, it's it's really a big tent sect right so there's a lot of diversity among reformed jews uh in, in, up to and including cultural judaism right which are their atheists who still uh practice judaism and and practice judaism maybe even and various degrees like some some eat kosher and some don't right you know so it's uh, and yet still go to synagogue, still participate in the Jewish community, might still uh, celebrate certain holidays and things. So, um, but that's all considered reform Judaism and they aren't, they aren't fractured in that sense. They, cause they don't require anyone to adhere to a certain set of doctrines to be in. Uh, so it's more of a community, uh, than a sect, uh, in that sense. The Orthodox, they're super hardcore. Uh, they will expel you if you don't follow things a certain way. And they do, there are splinter sects of them where they disagree, but there is a lot of uh, unity amongst the Orthodox sects. Uh, so, so Judaism has kind of just sort of settled down into the the, the conservative Shemites and the uh, even more liberal than the Hillelites uh, is what we've ended up with uh, in, in Judaism. And I think the reason that is is because Reform Judaism, which is the most populous, uh, most most Jews by far worldwide are in the Reform tradition, uh, is so inclusive, uh, and because they're they don't require you to leave if you disagree with certain things they that they've never fractured because there's nothing to fracture over really wow well put thank you guys crossover maniac thank you for the super chat didn't the sadducees only acknowledge the torah as canon and not the books of the prophets and was a lack of any mention of an afterlife in the torah the reason why they didn't believe in resurrection we'll start with carrier working to jonathan okay I don't know that we know the answer to that, actually. Um, the uh, Of course, the Torah does not have uh, any explicit mention of an afterlife, um, but by which we mean the, the Pentateuch, right? So uh, you get the first mentions of that in the other literature, uh, the King's literature, Sam, books of Samuel and things like that. Uh, you start to see hints of afterlife. Even then, it's not clear. Like the, the Witch of Endor summons the spirit to talk, but it's not clear that that spirit was doing anything other than sleeping you know, you know what i mean like so you summon so it's like it's not clear that, there, that there's some sort of afterlife he's living in but the spirit can be some the spirit of the dead can be woken up from the grave and you can talk to it which was a common necromantic principle in the ancient near east we find tons of spells and other uh versions of magic where you could do this or you could even keep the skull of someone and talk to their soul from time to time you just have to wake it up uh, but in, in that view, there is no afterlife per se, because people just sleep. Uh, and, and then if you wake them, they, their spirit shows up where you are. There's not like a hell or a heaven where, they, where they're located. Trying to relocate the souls into paradises like or, or hells or, and so forth was, a inf, uh, was an influence from outside. Uh, a lot of other a &E cultures had that idea, and that became started infiltrating into Judaism. So it's not implausible that the Sadducees uh, took that position. Uh, and also what, what, whether they supported um, the, the additional literature or which literature. That's the other thing. We don't know their canon. We don't know their preferred selection of stuff. So I, I, there might be some references in the literature to them accepting only Torah. That's possible. I haven't, I haven't double-checked that. Um, but then that runs into the question of, is that source reliable on this point? Uh, and so, uh, so I, I, I'm, I guess I'm saying that we don't really know the answer to that question confidently. Jonathan? Yeah, no, I think it's it comes down to, you know, what documentation we have that provide a specific list of, you know, you know, it's one thing to be more, you know, I'm more predisposed to the uh, to, to the Torah than the uh, uh, than the prophets and some of the histories. Uh, so, 
we can't define a, a specific, you know, uh, genre of books that they were willing to accept, or were they just me more predisposed to the Torah? Um, and, and I think that's where I land on it as well. We we don't have anything specifically stated. It, you know, if I'm naturally assuming, I, I, I think they would acknowledge the writings, whether they were more predisposed to the Torah. That, that's a different question. Thank you. Thank you. Constellation Pegasus. The lack of detail of life after death in Judaism is truly bizarre. A basic thing to know, deafed, deafened by silence. I just don't understand why that is. I, I, I feel you when I came from like uh, the Christian background, of course, it's like you kind of go, well, wouldn't this already be talked about like thoroughly throughout the Hebrew Bible? But that's kind of what uh, I mean, I feel where you're coming from. Would you guys like to quick make a quick remark? We'll get to the next Super Chat. I, I, I do like Dr. Carrier's Witch of Endor because it, it does open up the uh, idea, at least, uh, that they're trying to communicate uh, with the afterlife and uh, is that another dimension <laughs> um, right. and uh, you know is it uh, you know arising from a slumber or a sleep because it comes back and says well you, you shouldn't have done this um, and what does that represent <laughs> in, uh, in, in 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 Judaic culture obviously from a Christian you know we we have our perspective and our interpretations of, uh, you know, what's being portrayed there in the Old Testament. But yeah, it, it, it is quite interesting. I mean, there, there, you know, there's passages of, you know, the people waiting. Um, so it, it it does make up a very good conversation. I I, I do think it uh, it it does remind me of like the whole Yashurian Lake or, uh, you know, waiting or. I get the whole purgatory theme, you know, that uh, all these souls are just waiting for their people to forgive them as they're passing by and to throw them up, please save us. But yeah, um, it's it's worth pointing out that there's a lot more about discussions of the afterlife outside the Bible. So the Jewish Apocrypha, the historians and so on, uh, and the Talmud, right? So there, you can find a lot of this stuff. It's just not in the canon or what's called the canon now. Um, there is some, obviously, but I think, the main reason, uh, well, I think there's two reasons. One is uh, because they got so invested in resurrection theology, you know, by the time you see Daniel, for instance, and the way Ezekiel was reinterpreted and so on, um, it, it mostly just stuck with that. So there wasn't much need to go into any further details. Like, oh, yeah, we'll rise from the dead and God will fix everything. It'll be paradise, yada, yada. Don't need details. Um, whereas I think an additional factor of that is Merkaba mysticism was very big on keeping secrets. Uh, and so a lot of this stuff often got thrown under the table of these are secrets that only insiders should know. And so we don't we're not going to write about them. So there's a lot of that idea that it, there might have been a lot more thinking about the afterlife than ends up in written texts. Huh. And we have hints of that even in early Christianity. So like the nation letters mentions that there's some complex angelology that their religion depends on. And he specifically, the author specifically says, well, I can't go into this because these are secrets that I'm not supposed to write down. And so, and so we know there's, there's a lot of secret teachings. And I think the afterlife, docu afterlife doctrines were part of those secret teachings. And so um, that's why we don't see it written down a lot. And there's an analogy to this. The, the actual Bacchic mysteries, for example, also did this. The, the, the information about the afterlife is supposed to be restricted to initiates and often initiates of a certain rank. Uh, and that's why when, you, when we uh, upended the, when we dug up the graves of a lot of like fourth and fifth century uh, Bacchic initiates, 
they uh, were buried with these folded gold tablets uh, uh, and sometimes lead, but usually gold uh, that had secret instructions about what to do when you get to the afterlife. And it had more description of what's there, what passwords to give the gatekeepers and all of that, <laughs> a lot of detail uh, that was clearly meant to be a mystery that only the people buried are supposed to know. We don't have that stuff anywhere else, right? So it only shows up in these, these secret documents buried in the graves. Uh, and so this idea of keeping some of the afterlife secret, it, it was a thing at the time. It wasn't just a Jewish thing at the time. Uh, but we also know from Merkaba, mysticism was also like this. That there was a lot of secret keeping. You see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot of reference to things they can't write down. Uh, and so that that's another reason I think we have less you know, speculation and talk about the afterlife than we have, for example, in the Greek and Roman literature. Uh, go ahead and use the restroom. I know you got to use the restroom yeah. real quick. I'll Dr. be right Carrier. back, guys. The but, next uh, super I chat. I still you. hear what you're talking about. So yeah, yeah, going. you're fine. You're fine. I'll do this right here. Go ahead and bounce them off the screen for a second. I just want to say, I think it's really funny uh, that this is just me talking here, right? I think it's really funny that people who are alive have all the instructions on how to do things when you're not alive. But it's like, you know, that's that's the kind of funny thing that I get is like, here's the instructions. All right, when you get to this gate, you're going to find this gate once you're dead. When you get to that gate, make sure you take a left and say the angel's name. <laughs> it reminds me of that uh, movie, Army of Darkness. Oh, he, I love that. Yeah, uh, he had to remember three words. That's it. Yeah. And it's Shadrach. I'm just using like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because that's such an easy three. Yeah, no. Thing, he, but... uh, uh, was it Abdu? Um, Narata. Narata, yeah. It was. Graves <laughs> 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 start shaking. Then the zombies come back to life. That, and he's like, that, I said um, your words. That's one of my favorite uh, movies. He's like, give me some sugar, baby. <laughs> give me some sugar. Dude, that is such like, a classic. That, he was like, that was just pillow talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah Say hello classic. to my boomstick, you know? Yes. Yeah, that was definitely a classic. Uh, Richard will be back here in just a minute, everybody. The next one is going to be my friend Eric in Peru. Uh, he's got a nice super chat. I'm interested to hear his take. And, of course, your take as well. Um, I'm enjoying this. How, how are you enjoying this, Jonathan? No, it, it's great. It, it's really good uh, discussion. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You're the reason that this happened, uh, making this happen. And, um, you know, it's always fun hanging out, chatting with you and Richard. But, yeah, make sure you have those three words right when you enter the, uh, the afterworld. If you don't, just Gonna watch the Army of Darkness. Yep. Yep. There's three, three stupid words. <laughs> All right. Just a moment longer here. Um, is there anything you'd like to make a comment about before Richard comes back and we hit the super chat? No, I, you know, once again, I, I really enjoy your channel. As, as uh, Derek mentioned, I do support Derek's channel. I, I think uh, it's just part of uh, my ministry and the interfaith uh, dialogue. Derek does some really great content. Whether you agree with it or you do not agree with it, the level of engagement uh, and support he provides is, is definitely a reason to go ahead and support his channel. Uh, I mean, you know, how many people buy a Starbucks every day for like two, three bucks and you can't do that once a month? Uh, two or for... three? I wish it was two or three. Yeah, no, it's like six or seven dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's expensive. But yeah, no, I totally appreciate that. and. I know not everybody can too. That's another thing. Like they've got other things that are on a different uh, importance in their life. And I respect that too. Um, 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to his super chat we've got on on Daniel 1212. And then we also have uh let me look here. These super chats fly. Okay. Flip Flapsky, what an awesome name. Scholarvid and then uh Ahmed. Hope I'm saying that right. So we'll get to you guys here in a moment. Just a moment longer. He's back. All right. Switching sides again. Back to Norm. <clears throat> you're there, man. You are there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. And in fact, I have a thing to add to what you were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, Army of the Dark Army Army of Darkness? Army of the Dead. What was the net movie? Yeah, Army, Army of, of Darkness. Darkness. We're, we're trying to remember the three words that I, I know exactly. Said. And it's the words are very, very particularly interesting to this discussion. Uh, it's Klaatu Verata Niktu. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you would so keep the army dead. You, you, which, yeah. which, is, which is the words that, uh, that um, I can't remember the character's name. She was supposed to speak to Gort uh, when, uh, when Klaatu was killed in The Day the Earth Stood Still. It, it's supposed to mean in an alien language, resurrect Klaatu. Huh. So it's actually the, the phrase actually refers to resurrection. You're talking about it in the context of afterlife. I thought that was a funny irony. <laughs> and, and the fact that they chose those words for that movie is an inside joke about, uh, you know, classic sci-fi. So, wow. Okay, super chats. Uh, my friend Eric in uh, in Peru. He says hi, bro. For Richard in Daniel twelve twelve says, "Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thirteen thirty five days." What's supposed to happen in 1,335 days in difference with the time, times, and half of time? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of ink has been spilled on trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, just like everything in Daniel, it gets re reinterpreted different ways by different people. So there's a different question between what the authors meant and then what everybody else later tried to interpret it to mean. Um, I think what the authors meant was that that's when my, the angel Michael will descend and kill all the enemies of the Jews and institute God's paradise. Uh, and so happy will be the one who gets to live to see that day, even though everyone will, everyone who's righteous will get resurrected uh, anyway. Um, but it would be better to live rather than to have to suffer through the pangs of the grave between, you know, now and then is, I think, is, is the, the general idea of what they were going for. Uh, what, why what specific chronology they were trying to build and, and why and stuff like that uh, might not be knowable uh there might have been other particular reasons they were choosing the numerology they did so technically to answer your question on what was supposed to happen it was supposed to be a resurrection and a complete annihilation of, the of all of israel yeah uh and there's debate as to whether daniel what, what kind of paradise daniel is discussing is going to come uh, because we have references into some of the other prophets about the entire universe is going to be melted and then there's going to be a new earth that's going to be come down and, and everybody's going to occupy that. And in fact, that in the Talmud, we all grow wings in the resurrection specifically because there's going to be no earth. It's going to be destroyed. So we need to fly uh, to get to the new paradise, right? So that, like, there's a lot of elaborate uh, theology there, but uh, what's in Daniel is much more obscure as to what they were thinking is going to happen. Uh, and since there's such diversity, we, we can't make assumptions as to what they thought. Thank you. Flip Flopsky. Thank you for the big super chat, my friend. Thank you so much. 
The New Testament was written in the second century and stole characters from Josephus like Jesus and John the Baptist. Stole Jesus from Josephus. <laughs> That's a reference to... Um, I, I would have thought they would have said something that, uh, you know, uh, Luke was cribbing from Plutarch or. Uh, so so, so um, the, the only thing uh, and this is not this is incorrect, in my opinion, uh, as a general statement. Uh, the, the only so, for example, Mark talks about Mark might have gotten ideas about John the Baptist and uh, well, Jesus Ben Ananias, which is probably what this is what they're referring to. Uh from Josephus's Jewish War, which is different from the Antiquities, one must keep in mind. Um, and I don't know if John the Baptist is even in the Jewish War. I think he's in the Antiquities. But yeah. uh, um, so, uh, but anyway, with the Jesus Ben Ananias, uh, it's not that Mark got the idea of Jesus from Josephus. The idea of Jesus predates Mark by you know decades, right? It's in Paul, for instance. So, uh, but he's he's using this template of Jesus Ben Ananias, who is this other prophet, prophetic figure who was killed during the Jewish war. And he overlays, he uses the skeleton of his story to structure the story of the gospel Jesus. And so there's been some scholarship on this showing the analysis is like 20, 20 to 22 points of comparison that are all in the correct order of how Mark is basically using a template from a different Jesus to tell the story of his Jesus. Uh, if people are interested in that, I have a whole section on it with bibliography in on the history of city of Jesus, uh, which is my book on this, my, my peer reviewed monograph on that. So that, that's in there. Um, if you're interested, the John the Baptist thing, I don't know to what extent. So the, the version of John the Baptist that we find in Josephus does not line up with the John the Baptist in the Gospels. And so, so if there's borrowing in that direction, it's with alteration of some kind. Um, but we do know that Luke acts, there, there's a lot of evidence that Luke acts knew the antiquities of Josephus and used it extensively for color context. Uh, but there, there's not a lot in Luke about John the Baptist that doesn't come from Matthew and Mark, right? So uh, so I, I wouldn't think that Josephus was a source that Luke necessarily used for John the Baptist. He may have, he may have gotten some some of his little changes and stuff from there. I'm not sure, I've not looked into that uh, critical analysis. There, there probably is some literature on it, but um, so I think one has to be more qualified than this uh, sort of general statement that we've got from Flavsky. Do, do you wanna comment on that or you agree? Jonathan. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, <laughs> just the thoughts on, okay, well, you know, if it was, if, if what he's referring to, you know, uh, you know, which congregation did that come out with, uh, you know, and, and obviously there's different ideas. So in the second century, when uh, were they pulling from, you know, which, uh, which church were they doing and how were they distributing it to other groups that we already know that are very decisive. So, um, but once again, I don't want to read too much into that because uh, I'm trying to understand the basis of the claim. Uh, but uh, no, I think what Carrier says makes sense. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Scholar Vid, thank you for the super chat. He says, Jonathan, would you accept the ascension of Isaiah or Isaiah as evidence for the idea or idea? Idea. <laughs> idea wow. of a purely celestial Jesus. Would you accept that idea? Um, well, you know, the uh, ascension of Isaiah, it's, you know, one of my points is it, it's, it's not found in the, uh, the Orthodox Jewish canon or what they, uh, constitute that. Um, I, you know, I, I think the idea, 
uh, is that. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, you go to New York City. That's how we all talk. I'm even, just teasing you, man. No, nah, it's all it's all good. I, even though I'm um, kind of down here in Texas, uh, still has not lost it. Uh, but I I think I would need probably a little bit more. I I think um, you know would I accept the ascension? I I I think Marcion makes a better uh, claim for a purely celestial Jesus. I, I think, you know, because I think the foundation of his argument is better uh, from the Ascension. Yeah, even though the idea is there, I, I think what, you know, Marcin is at least saying that this is the, the corpus of Paul or the, the better understanding, uh, and this is how we get this idea of Jesus. Um, and I don't know Dr. Carrier's thoughts on that. I, I think oh, if yeah, I'm going to make a better argument for Marcin's uh, overall view, because he was arguing, hey, this came first, all this stuff was added on, and the original idea of Jesus being this celestial Jesus is found within that context. So that's where I would say, not that it's, yeah, it's, it's evidence, yes. Uh, better evidence, I, I think some of the claims that Marcion made has a stronger foundation within the church uh, structure as a whole. I, I think what uh, Scarlavid meant is a Jesus who never came to Earth. I think it's what he's referring to, because this is the dispute over the what did the original text of the Ascension of Isaiah say? This because we know it. What we have is not what was original, uh, mm -hmm. and so and so I discussed the complexity of this. What has been deleted? What has been added? What you know, and so on. Um, we can kind of attempt a reconstruction of an earlier version of the text, given all the different versions that we have. Uh, using the science of paleography and text, textual criticism, uh, and I cover that in chapter in a chapter chapter beginning of chapter three and on the historicity of Jesus, and I build out there the argument there that one could argue that it does right. It does suggest that Jesus never came to Earth in the original version, which we don't have. Uh, now it's worth pointing out that I I give a weight to that as evidenced of almost zero uh, because of the ambiguities and uncertainties involved. We, we can't reliably date the document. We can't reliably reconstruct it with confidence and so on. Uh, so so it's. I think people uh, like flip out when I uh, start the chapter with that as a proof of concept of how this actually looks like it makes sense. Uh, even though in, in the final analysis, I don't weight it very strongly. I don't think it's very strong evidence. Uh, it, it is evidence, like it, it weighs slightly in favor uh, of that conclusion, but it is not the conclusive smoking gun that we would want. What we would want would be like uh, pre-Paul, like if there was a document that predated Paul that that said, you know, essentially what we imagine that was said in the original, if there was an original copy of Ascension of Isaiah that predated Paul, and we could prove that, like that would be extremely strong. That would be much stronger evidence, uh, right? And and it would be even stronger if it was, if it could be dated as a Christian document to like, the time of Mark, for example, when let's say the seventies AD, because then that would mean the Christians very early on, there were Christians, unlike Mark, taking a completely different tack on how to write the gospel of Jesus. Um, but we don't have that. So uh, like we, we would want that, but we, we don't have that. So, so it, as it is, it's so ambiguous, so meddled with, so uh, none of the questions can be settled with confidence that it is weak evidence uh, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Ahmed, I hope I'm saying that right. Ahmed, Ahmed, just saying thanks. You guys are fantastic. Learn so much from this channel and its community. Thank you all. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. 
yeah. Would you guys like to do a 10 minute diatribe about this? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I kidding. do learn a lot. I know. I, I think this channel is great. You, especially lately, you've been getting a lot of really cool scholars on, uh, uh, and, and of both genders too, which I really like this. Not a lot of shows that focus on biblical studies will get, uh, some of the leading lights uh, among the women who are scholars in this field too. So uh, a lot of cool stuff on this channel. Check out. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Constellation Pegasus. I hope I didn't skip anybody. I didn't see any other ones. So this is last one. Any books on these secret knowledge scrolls that people were buried with? Should we start digging up more graves? This is fantastic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they're called the gold tablets. Um, there, there is literature on it. Uh, I mean, it's so old now. Like it's this is this is a, a footnote in in the historical field. I mean, it's so old school that like everybody just knows it. And who's in the field of uh, ancient religions um, that there hasn't been much new written about it. Uh, so uh, some of the writings about it are kind of hard to find actually nowadays. Um, but it's all cited in on the on the history of Jesus. No, in uh, the empty tomb. I discuss it in the empty tomb. So that's another example of something where I. I think, yeah, that's right, because I do, because I analyze Mark's empty tomb story in light of these secret gold scrolls, uh, because what they say, there's a lot of interesting riffs. So it almost looks like Mark knows the mystery teaching of the Bacchae and is creating a, a better, newer version of it involving Jesus. Um, I mean, it's not decisive, but it's tantalizing. It's like the Ascension of Isaiah in that way. It's, it's tantalizing. Uh, but it doesn't conclusively <laughs> prove anything. Uh, but the point being is I have a footnote in there that, that cites the literature. It's mostly journal articles. I don't know if there, there might be actually, there might be a book on it. Um, I can't remember now off the top of my head, but, uh, but yeah, there, there's, there are tons of these and they, they date roughly like fifth to fourth century uh, BC. Uh, and, and the scrolls start disappearing after that. Like they, they, people aren't buried with them anymore, but we know the Bacchic mysteries are still going around. Uh, they were super popular for a while. So I, I suspect that it was just a question of uh, they were no longer they no longer thought that they had to have the scroll with them upon burial, uh, and and that maybe that was becoming a, a cause of looting of graves, uh, and consequently they probably declined in the use of this this strategy. Uh, and that's also actually you start to notice that the spell scrolls or the the curse scrolls turned to lead. So this cheap lead that no one wants to loot graves for. Uh, it started to become the more common way of these rolled scrolls that you would have in graves. Uh, but those are usually like curses or blessing. They're usually magic spells rather than Bacchic mysteries and stuff. What I suspect is after the, the fourth century, uh, people were just told to remember it. <laughs> Memorize it. When you're there, you'll know what to do. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Jim Majors just got his uh, PhD in uh, actually the study of daniel so he's yeah like, yeah we were just we had just referred to him earlier uh yeah, yeah excellent congratulations he said i would love to join you guys but derek said dr carrier is allergic to mustaches and that mr sheffield was just plain scared <laughs> 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 guys <laughs> yeah I'm yeah. not allergic to mustaches. <laughs> yeah. He's not. He started growing one when we were in California recently. He well, there was yeah. a reason. I, I was actually growing my hair out for a cosplay uh, for one of my girlfriend's parties. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trimming out a proper full beard and stuff. So a lot of our video has that. Uh, yeah. I think probably all of it. It shows me with, the, with fa more facial hair than I usually have. That's all on the Patreon. And then uh, I do want to address our friend, Dr. Kip Davis, as well. 
He says, this podcast would be much better if you could get these guys to start singing, start singing. <laughs> and uh, uh, actually, I'm, I'm tone deaf. You don't want that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do I, love I, karaoke, uh, but that's because I, I don't mind being totally terrible in front of people. So it's, uh, well, yeah, he I, did this the other night and was like, I, I will sing it if someone throws $100. And sure enough, someone came through and he had to sing this gospel song. Oh, it was funny. Oh, um, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was kicked out of choir in second grade. I, I think I had to go to, uh, and it was on Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. That's when I learned I was tone deaf. Uh, kicked out. I had to go to a library appreciation class. So, uh, even though I'm a big fan of musicals, I, I love watching The Voice. Um, I am horrible at uh, singing. I, I can't say I, I do cartoons good, but yeah, right. um, sing, singing, no, that's. Not my forte. Look, he says, coward carrier, no one is more tone deaf than me. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe for a $100. Uh, that might be uh, true. I, I don't know. I think maybe for a $100 donation to or super chat, uh, we can get a piano bar type of request. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I will, I will say this. Uh, Dr. Uh, Kip Davis said earlier that um, there's – the possibility, I think he was saying something about Sadducean influence with the um, uh, with the Samaritan Pentateuch or something like that. He made a, a, a snippet response to that. Didn't really go too much into it, but there might have been something there. There uh, is actually a lot of weird interconnections with the Samaritans. Like the Essenes appear to be a Samaritan sect, for instance. Um, and when you look at all the sources discussing them, I, I go into this in that one section I was talking about in the empty tomb. The, the, there's a, there's more sects of Samaritans, and then there's a lot of other sects have interesting ties to Samaritanism. So the Samaritanism was mattered a lot more than 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 we get the impression of today. Wow, interesting, interesting. Well, I guess um, we've run to the end of the super chat questions, and we've gone quite a bit. I think this has been really fun. I want to allow you guys like uh, just closing uh, comments, if you don't mind, with this discussion. This was really fun. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I, the only thing I, I would say to fellow Christians and others out there is just really this idea of ethical engagement. Um, I think even in the uh, go out and read the articles. I know uh, a lot of people like the cartoons because they're easier to digest, but um, there's a lot of good thought that goes into these articles. And I think in one of the conclusions uh, of the article that I had uh, put out there was you know, all we're asking is to uh, hear the witnesses or the, the Jewish testimonies and really engage in ethical dialogue. Um, and I think, you know, back to Dr. Carrier's point, uh, I, I think there needs to be more interface dialogue from this academic, um, you know, standpoint, uh, which is really going to help uh, build the ministry, get your ideas out there. And, you know, stepping out of our comfort zones, uh, to go out there into someone else's home field and share your ideas. Uh, and I think, you know, Dr. Carrier, his, uh, uh, the subscribers of his blog, uh, while, you know, they don't agree with me, uh, they're very polite and respectful, and we get to have really good dialogues. And I think this is where, you know, Christianity really needs to go with these dialogues. Get the ideas back out there. The early Christians did. They went out there. Uh, into you know uh, you know a much different environment. Richard, 
Yeah, I agree with all of that, uh, actually. As Dennis McDonald would say, as we as we'll know from people who, who watch our videos that we cut for this, the, the only coda I would add to that uh, is that what, what my evangelism in this is historical methodology, right? So um, my interest lately has been on methodology, including methodology of apologetics and also methodology of where methodologies go wrong. Uh, so like I've done articles on conspiracy theories and things like that. How do people get themselves into these belief systems? And so I'm more interested in focusing on that and getting people to realize the methods and the principles that they're using and how they think. And so, uh, and so I want people to look at that. So analyze these arguments to see what is the structure of that and what is that a good methodology for getting to a conclusion? And if not, what do we replace it with? Uh, and and that's so I'm bringing, uh, you know, what what do historians today do? Why do they do it? Uh, why are the methods we use the way they are uh, rather than some other way? And then how are some of the common methods that, that I think people fall into false beliefs, the methods that lead them there? Uh, and you can actually f identify them and label them and discuss the structure of them and, and see them repeated in many other contexts. So uh, so that's that's my thing is I want to get that message out. Uh, that's my gospel. I want people to be aware of methodology uh, and how to, how to improve their own methodology and how to spot when other people's methodologies uh, are, are not working. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the, that's basically the message that I want. And then the only other thing I'd add is to check out my stuff, uh, richardcarrier.info. Everything is there. If you want to look into my classes, my books, uh, my blog and, and all my feeds, uh, Facebook and Twitter and so on are all accessible from richardcarrier.info. Mm. That reminds me, everybody go subscribe right here in the chat is Jonathan Sheffield's YouTube channel. You guys are going to see as we go through the outro where I have the gods, come visit me in my laboratory, in my <laughs> office. They're, they're really interested in myth vision. I don't know what the heck has gotten into them, but uh, you guys will get to see that first eyewitness testimony here. You can go and tell everybody about the facts that you're going to see here in a minute. But Jonathan Sheffield was the creator of that. So I ask you guys, myth vision fans, followers, I don't care what you believe. Go show my friends some love, subscribe, because – he has some interesting stuff. The cartoon, one of my favorite ones is the channel channel trailer. That one is super awesome. I mean, <laughs> no, seriously, you, you, and I'm just going to scam. Like, I got to give everybody a little sneak peek here. I'm going to turn the volume down. They can't really hear it because I don't want it to possibly hurt me. I don't know if you have music in here that might mess up. Oh, the yeah, show. right. <laughs> uh, but look at this, right? I'm going to do it at two times speed. Y your quality is really good, too. Let me do it at 1080p. We're going to go super high quality here. Two times. I think it's good. I know Dr. Carrier makes an appearance in here, there too. There he is. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I did it. That's, this is his his artwork. He does all this. And he's going to face Robert Price is in there. Um, <laughs> and I have two Christians in there. I just want to let everyone know. I got yeah. Uh, yeah. James White and Daniel Wallace. So oh, it's Right. Yeah. Okay. This is awesome right here. Yeah, that that's the ultimate Matrix scene. Um. <laughs> that's fantastic. You really went all out with that, dude. And then she's alive. <laughs> that is super cool. Um, seriously, though. I don't know what it is right there. Um, also, go to Richard Carrier's um, website, richardcarrier.info. You guys read the articles. You can um, check out the blogs. If you want to take an online course, he does college courses online. You can hire him for tasks. I mean, there's a lot you can do, uh, you know, with Richard Carrier on his blogs and be able to have him come on to shows if you're interested in talking with him. I don't know. Do you do private consulting like 
discussions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I discuss my rate in the how to help. If you, if people could look at the screen right now. There's yeah, that right in there is a bunch of different ways that you can help support my work, including buying books through my website and so on. But including that is is hiring me, what that takes and so on. Um, but yeah, I do private consults. I do private uh, vetting. So some, a lot of people will bring me essays for me to peer review for them or comment on. Uh, I've been hired for a variety of projects that have ended up on my blog. Uh, someone wanted me to write an official report on the accuracy of a book for uh, a, a formal report that he was going to file with the BBC. And, you know, just, I've been hired for a lot of different things like that, uh, where I'll write historical commentary for them or whatever the case may be. Uh, and doing engagements like like Sheffield, uh, Jonathan has done uh, as well. So wow. I do I do lots of those things. And my rates are explained in there, um, at least my hourlies. Uh, if it's a written project, then then you have to hit me up uh, through private messaging or something like that. And then I can discuss the different levels of, of rates, depending on what it is you want to do. Awesome. Go check that out. It's all in the description. All of this stuff is in the description of this video. Also the Patreon, ladies and gentlemen. You can go check us out. I mean, there's tons of stuff that, you know, Dr. Dennis R. McDonald, Richard Carrier, what these atheists believe. Like I created thumbnails. <laughs> this is the one where we talk about the Blade Runner in this one. And it is yeah, really, yeah. really good. That one right. got really emotional, actually. Yeah. Which was really good. Look at your face, dude. And a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff is only going to be available on your Patreon or does it eventually no, go public? Eventually or? some of this will definitely, I don't know when though, when sure. all of this yeah. stuff will find its way to YouTube. But, Patreon members get access to stuff. Some of the stuff now. Uh, no, all of it. All point. of it now. Yeah. All oh, of really? It. Oh, yeah. All the clips. All like of there's it. every single. Right? Oh, more than I've got probably three or four hundred videos on Patreon. Oh, right. That no oh. one, no one uh, has seen on YouTube. That 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 that's how much content I have on the Patreon. And awesome. the seventy-two videos will all be there early. So what I'm getting at is when this video, which I'll probably launch this sometime, who knows, within the next two three months. I don't know because it's a matter of how I feel. But by the time this hits YouTube, I'll have another 70 or 140 videos on Patreon that no one has seen. And you can steer the discussion. So, like, if you join me and you message me, you could say, hey, uh, your next visit with Richard Carrier, ask this question. I take questions from my Patreon yeah. members, as we did. And we recorded, what, like 20, 25 Patreon questions? Yeah, at least. Yeah. Yeah, and it was all like your special video in 1080p with this scholar asking, hey, uh, so-and-so asks Dr. Richard Carrier, what do you think of this? And Dr. Richard Carrier responds. So, like, all of these are, you know, stuff you don't see yet that will finally make its way onto YouTube. And you're helping me keep doing what I'm doing. That's, like, the biggest reason why I had to leverage some way to make this accessible for oh what am i doing there we go um yeah, i was like i had to i have to leverage it in some way to keep doing yeah. this full time yeah. and this is my way of you being able to keep this thing going so yeah um yeah look secret stash joel pearson <laughs> but seriously i appreciate you guys um yeah. i'm selling <laughs> i'm up selling i got hey i gotta let you know like this is my leverage to the wife too i could be like hey i, I i'm working yeah, yeah, I'm working. Yeah, it, it, it is a good project. I, I believe in what you're doing, so I hope I hope people will support you. Well, thank keep you. This, keep this channel alive because you, you're a great host and you have on a lot of great guests. Well, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. I'll write you the check after. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> seriously. Now let's get into our outro. But before we do, I want everyone to know: if you're lost, you don't know your way home. It's okay. Come on home. Hey, baby. Come on home. 
We are Mythvision.